my fellow historians. Welcome back. It's Sunday. And we're here to talk about another fun topic chosen by our loyal and lovely patrons. It's Casterly Rock time, my friends. Indeed. I've got my somewhat faded, fun Lannister shirt. But hey, this shirt's 8,000 years old. Like Casterly Rock, it's amazing that it's held together this well. They make them good. Sean, what are you enjoying today? Do you have a golden beverage, a red beverage? I wish I had thought to get a more golden colored one. This one is probably looks more appropriate for the Riverlands or the, <laughs> the Barrow. Do you have some swamp area? Yeah, that's more Cranigman. <laughs> you got that Cranig drink again. <laughs> it's it's a less uh, it's a mix I don't make as often or a type I don't have. With, usually I put different green things together or different red things together. But when you put green and red together, you get a brown one like this with the. Uh, <laughs> What was it? It was the Black Cherry Bank, the Watermelon Mountain Dew, and the Green Machine Naked Drink. Uh, ooh, okay. That one doesn't sound too crazy, actually. I think I might I might like that one. Every, I think every fifth or sixth drink, I think <laughs> I might not dislike that. <laughs> Although I probably would dislike a lot of them. I'm drinking a 300 milligram espresso mocha. I, so, you know. You have no right to judge my drink. I don't, really. I don't. This, is, this <laughs> drink is more powerful than yours. There's probably fewer ingredients, though. <laughs> we have a, a special live audience today. Our good friend Tommy Pappas is here. Hey, Tommy. <laughs> Host of the New Dad podcast in the house. That's right. Not and just in the chat, but in the house. Literally, it is our house. In the chat <laughs> as TKOK Podcast Network. I see him there. That's right. So that's good times. And that's a reminder, folks, if you're in the audience, you can ask us questions. You can also do so ahead of time by joining one of our social media discussion areas, the Discord, the Facebook, the Twitter, the email, all the thes, all those things that you know about. And shout out to our friend goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's Nina Friel. Her blog has a lot of excellent takes on it. Some of them end up in the podcast couple of recent examples, she talks about the Weirwood at Castley Rock, which we're going to talk about today. And she also has a recent post about Jaehaerys and Dorne and Prince Morian and some other things. Really good stuff. Check it out. GoodQueenAlleyWithOneL.tumblr.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Starting with our trivia question. And folks, the question is, who says this line? As the river is called the Mander, though the Manderleys were driven from its banks a thousand years ago, High Garden is still High Garden, though the last gardener died on the field of fire. Casterly Rock teams with Lannisters, and nowhere a Casterly to be found. The world changes, sir. 
Yeah, so answer at the end. And I've taken up a new policy of not writing the answer in the document. So Sean and Shay get tortured like the rest of you without not knowing what the answer is for two to three hours. I do think I know the answer, by the way. Oh, cool. Well, you can guess at the end. That'll be great. I don't put up easy questions, do I? Maybe a couple of them have been. But anyway, the Lannisters have had Casterly Rock for 8,000 years or so. Not the best example of change, as that quote indicates, but it did change. Yet if something so locked in could change, it would be during this new age of heroes that the books are representing. In this episode, as we look on the eternal Casterly Rock, not only will we ask ask whether the Lannisters will keep it. We'll ask if it truly is eternal or just seems that way from a human perspective. It can't be, say, flooded like the rains were. That's uh, the case of an underground situation where they were killed by their own setup. That wouldn't really work here. The rock is inside a mountain, but only a little bit of it is below sea level and not the parts where the Lannisters live. That would just be an inconvenience for them if the blower caves flooded. But you, and you can also, can you really imagine Tywin or his ancestors not living at the top? Doesn't that seem like, when that seems strange, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna live at the bottom of the mountain. It's like, no, nah, Tywin would live at the top. I don't want to take away from your point, but I can see them not living all the way at the top because it would take forever to get down. You're right. Like it depends, especially maybe while he's home, he stays there and he has other people go up and down. But anyone that needs to like venture out doesn't want to be at the top. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, it's interesting you think about the High Tower, where supposedly Lord Layton hasn't descended in 10 years, which is like, whoa. Yeah. Like, he's got his servants, his wealth, every other thing. Like, I imagine there have been Lannisters that have done that. Obviously, Tywin didn't. Maybe if he hadn't been named Hand of the King and been reigning for so long, he might have been up there for a long time. But that's an interesting point. Yeah, like, it does make it harder to observe what's really happening to see the outside world and yeah it causes some problems and that's something we'll cut that'll come up today the some advantages and disadvantages of that scenario obviously they're very hard to conquer and haven't been conquered there's internal struggles and the the things you miss out on by being so detached from what's going on around you let's start off with a second quote here that's not a trivia quote and get ourselves going Hundreds of mine shafts penetrate the lower parts of the rock, where many veins of red and yellow gold gleam untouched in the stone, even after millennia of mining. The Casterlies were the first to begin to carve halls and chambers from the mine shafts, and they established a ring fort on the rock's peak from which they could survey their domain. The rock has been measured as thrice the height of the wall or the high tower of Old Town. Now, the size of the place, just as a mountain, there's nothing too strange about that. The fact that it's been turned entirely into a castle, that is pretty amazing. But the thing is, I started this episode with an, a belief that Castle Rock is just absurdly huge. And it is really, really big. But doing some light research on real-world tunnels and the Rock of Gibraltar and other stuff, it's... Not as crazy as I first thought. There's some really amazing facts about, like, again, Gibraltar is the best example because that is what George used as the model for Casterly Rocks. And we're going to be starting off with a lot of the real-world comparisons to set the stage on what is and isn't realistic, and that's going to be fun. 
I, I was happy about that too. I was like, oh, thank God he didn't make it some preposterously <laughs> large. I mean, again, like you said, it is really, really big, but it's not. I thought he was going to make it like as high as Mount Everest or something. Yeah. <laughs> if George knew, it is still. He, maybe he would have if he had like he because yeah. he knows about Gibraltar, like he's been there. So I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> maybe he didn't. But I could that. easily see him of just accidentally putting an extra zero yeah. in the <laughs> number of feet tall it was yeah. or whatever. Because I think he made it something like. Like 50% bigger than a rocket Gibraltar. Yeah, it's massive. Which is huge. Let's not, be, but, yeah, let's yeah. not downplay how big it is, but it, it, I was like you. I thought it was like just absurdly huge. Now I'm like, nah, this is just monstrously huge. <laughs> Comparing it to any other castle, it's absurdly yeah, huge. Yeah, But it's not quite a fair comparison. Yeah, so right. Comparing it to other mountains, compared to other mountains, yeah, it's about normal. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah the mountain, the mountain part isn't the crazy part. Yeah, that's 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 part of what yeah. makes it. Like you're, you're when we when we start to talk about things like, do they really walk this many miles just every day? To that's the part that's a little <laughs> like, wow. Okay, well. Anyway, but we'll be getting into some more specific details of that. Nina says, that's a pretty substantial feat for the Castrolese to not only climb to the peak of the rock, but also carry the building and construction materials. Yeah, given how tall the mountain is and they put a <laughs> they put a ring for it at the top of it. I was like, whoa, that was that was not a little bit where this isn't the first fist of the first men <laughs> where they just, you know, it's, <laughs> which was difficult enough. They had to climb up that hill and it was a real pain. But what we saw at the fist of the first men is an interesting comparison because when John was leaving to go explore and he eventually found the cloak with the arrowheads in it that Ghost showed him, he had to be let out. Like, he couldn't just go, go back and forth. There were guards keeping it on lockdown, keep the fortification, and that's going to be a thing here. People aren't going in and out of the rock without permission very often, I don't think. And that's, that's something to remember. And that started with this early, these early security measures were the beginning of that. You can't have the wrong people getting inside, when the defense is so important, you can't have new poisoners or who knows, just any sort of malcontents. You got to tightly control who's, who's allowed inside. And again, not to take away from Nina's point about the accomplishment it is for them to have created this structure, but they had a long time to do it, right? This is thousands of years old. Yeah, that's they, It wasn't at the state it's in now when it was first made. Even the original ring for it might have been very a very superficial structure they just got improved on more and more over time. I think there's even like a quote we're going to have later on about the idea that like these great lords we hear of in the past, Winterfell didn't start off as the capital of the whole north. Right. It was just a small area, and over time it grew. The, the Castle Rock probably didn't start off as this massive, intricate structure that it is. It probably started off as maybe even like a wooden ring fort that then got reinforced with stone, and tunnels got dug deeper, and so on. Even King's Landing started that. You're totally right. That is how they start. They start off smaller. They add castles aren't monoliths. They get you can add another la- layer of walls or a whole other building. Winterfell is a perfect example. Storms end. Yeah. And the same is true with Castle Rock. It's just not visible. There's no one from the, no one on the outside can tell you what new structure was just carved out inside because it's not they can't see it right. So that's the difference. The so Storms End, Winterfell, all very visible from the distance. Castle Rock, only the outside is visible, and that's not where most of it is. So that's pretty interesting. Nina also says, this is also why I feel confident that Castle Rock is one of Lomas Longstrider's natural wonders. Even without the fact that the Castle and Lannisters carved home into it, this mountain is a truly colossal site, something that is more or less unique in this world. There are taller individual peaks and more substantial mountain ranges, but Castle Rock juts out of seemingly nothing, a mountain unique to itself. Yeah, there's not like a lot of other mountains nearby. I mean, there's a lot of other mountains in the region. It's a mountainous, hilly part of Westeros. But yeah, Castle Rock is like a lonely mountainish situation. That is one way they measure 
the tallest mountains, it's relative to what's around them. Mm. Like that one measures just straight from sea level. Well, one is, I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but it's something along the lines of like from the average height of the land around it or something oh, okay. like that. Because a lot of times you will have mountain ranges, which generally are all way high above sea level. And one of those peaks is a little higher than the rest of them. Whereas you'll have other places where there's a single mountain jutting up out of nowhere that seems relatively much larger. I, I looked into this one time because flying to... Seattle, there's a mountain, Rainier, that's it. And we've been told, look out the window, you can see it. And so looking out the window every now and then, like, I wonder if that's it. I wonder if that's it. And then all of a sudden, like, oh. okay, that's it. <laughs> it was so clearly <laughs> monumentally taller than anything else I had seen in my life. Just out of nowhere, there's one huge, massive mountain. It is really nice. Mount Rainier is beautiful. I, I had a long distance relationship in college very long distance relationship. I was in Tallahassee and she was in Seattle. <laughs> so about as long as you could get. Yeah, it didn't last. <laughs> in the US. Yeah. <laughs> but when I well, one time <laughs> I visited there, I would borrow her car while she was at work and I could drive up to she was wasn't actually in Seattle, it was just close by. And I would drive and just the whole time going north on this interstate, you're facing it and it's just beautiful. Just the whole way. You're like yeah. right at this thing. And yeah, that's pretty cool. Anyway, but that's off topic, but very worthwhile. Folks, check out Mount Rainier if you uh, get, put it on your bucket list. Last week, we saw with the Stepstones, an example of a region extremely difficult to control. I didn't plan it this way, but this is a nice reversal where you have a region that's somewhat easy to control, given this incredibly defensible, powerful, like, control spot. It makes sense that no one can hold the Stepstones, while it makes sense that you can hold Castle Rock slash the region around it. It's an overwhelmingly dominant position that's super easy to hold, relatively speaking. And while trade is substantial in the region like it is in the Stepstones, the Stepstones doesn't actually provide its own wealth that we know of. It's all about the trade passing through it. Whereas Castle Rock has trade passing through in abundance right next door at Lannisport, but it has its own monstrous supply of wealth in the gold mines. Now, we'll, we'll clarify this a little bit, a bit more later, but if some of y'all have forgotten or got your cannons mixed up, don't forget the show went its own direction with that whole the Lannister mines are empty thing. That's a show only thing. They're definitely not empty in the books. George specifically clarified that. It's like, no, nah, they're still fine. They're still going. Aside from Lannisport, Castle Rock has its own port too. You're like, right. It's another yeah. piece of its huge value on multiple levels. You're right. And, and as we'll see a little bit later, that's a unique feature that not only is unique to it, but the great houses, a lot of the other great houses don't have that or a lot of other things. So the Lannisters have a lot of advantages <laughs> over the other great houses. It was another thing like we this. touched on last time also, but the Stepstones don't necessarily have good landing spots. Yeah. Castle Lock does, so it's a an, an extra, extra value. George did every angle he could to make it be <laughs> super valuable. Arguably, Castle Rock is the single best location for a noble house in all of Westeros. And you could make that case even more before King's Landing existed. I'm not sure there's a better location in Essos either. Like Sean said, there's a huge private port. It's also incredibly defensible and massively rich. So yes, sea access, wealth, defensible, nearby population center, like nothing can really top that. And and at this point, established infrastructure, like some other True. spot that theoretically might be better, hasn't had all the effort put into it over the, yeah. the thousands of years. Everybody knows to go trade at Landsport. Everybody's heard about the gold of Castle Rock. As we'll see, those rumors are a big part of giving it additional power, additional mystique. mystique. Great choice of word there. Yeah. Castle Rock, as we as y'all know, we haven't seen it on screen yet. Well, on screen we have. <laughs> 
on page. We haven't seen it through a POV character. We've sort of seen a little bit of it in Fire and Blood. And of course, like I, like I accidentally pointed out, we've seen it on TV. But no POV character has seen it. And that's a really big difference. But it comes up so often because of its mystique, because of its prestige, because of the power of anyone that can hold its names. Like anyone who says, I'm a Lannister of Casterly Rock, people are like, oh, Casterly Rock, you say? That's a huge deal. As much a part of today, we're going to be talking about the physical location. Don't forget to keep an eye on it as a symbol, which we'll be doing as well. But let's start off with the influences, like I said. Influences on us. I want to shout out Joanna Lannister, her fantastic post from about five years ago called Castley Rock is No Ordinary Castle, joannalannister.tumblr.com, and Stephen Atwell, recurring guest here, friend of ours, has raced for the Iron Throne, uh, also on Tumblr. He responded to her post back in 2016, and they collaborated. It's a great read, reading both of their posts. They uh, use a lot of imagination. I did put the link in the chat, so you can click on that to reach it. Yeah, so it's got some great graphics, too, just like a hollowed-out version, and like some guesses of where certain things might be. So it's really cool. It's really cool. Later on, when we bring up me asking George a question about Castle Rock, I asked that question because of Joanna Lannister right there. It was her question. Yep. So she that's why I listed her prominently with our influences, because she inspired Shay to go farther with this. And it's coming back around now. We finally... Six years later. Get to do an episode all about it with all these details. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so from what I know of Joanna Lannister, she probably used as much logic as imagination in that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. She is very smart. Yes, but you got to do some imagining. Yeah, because it's just there's so much unknown. Which George is good at doing that. He's keeping the details a little vague so that when he does put it on screen, he hasn't boxed himself into a corner too much. So he's got plenty of room for imagination, as we'll see. The Rock of Gibraltar. This is really neat. I learned so much, some really surprising things about this place. A few things that I knew already that was relevant to my personal life, such as that it is formerly a major military economy. Now it is one of the most popular spots for online gambling companies to have their headquarters. <laughs> Not only is it secure, but it has a really low tax rate, a small company, small country. Most companies can't just up and move to Gibraltar, but when everything you do is online, well, you've got more flexibility. So yeah. It's made of dolomite, the base. It's mostly limestone on the inside. The base is made of dolomite, which I only point out because dolomite, I mean, Rudy Ray Moore, <laughs> dolomite. That's, I gotta love dolomite. And, and Bender is, is part dolomite, I think. <laughs> Bender the robot. It's 2.6 square miles, 6.7 kilometers. So it's very large. Another similarity to the Stepstones. Half of the world's trade passes by the Rock of Gibraltar. Half. I mean, whoa. <laughs> it's, it's a weird mix, mix of isolated and independent and also incredibly interconnected and worldly. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. Just like Castle Rock. Like if they want to shut themselves inside that rock, you will not get them out. But they are right next to one of the biggest cities in the world and are like back and forth trade. Yeah, they just have the ability to shut it all down. Yeah. In the year 1704, during the Spanish Succession War, Gibraltar was taken by the English, and they never lost it. <laughs> it's, it's still partly English now. It's somewhat independent. It's like getting into the political situation now isn't really important, but it's still largely English. And one really fascinating thing is there's, during the American Revolution, the American Revolution, mind you, the Rock of Gibraltar was huge, which sounds really counterintuitive. Like, how the hell was the Rock of Gibraltar in Europe so crucial to the American Revolution. Well, I'll tell you. 
First of all, there's what's called the Great Siege Tunnels, which are also called the galleries, which y'all will recognize because galleries are a part of the description of what's in inside Casterly Rock. There was a three and a half year siege of Gibraltar during the American Revolution. Three and a half years. Whoa, right? It involved over 60,000 men, 49 ships, and a new invention called floating batteries, like floating cannon installments that the engineer said were unsinkable. They sunk. All of them. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) And there was only something like 5,000 soldiers inside. So 5,000 soldiers head out against like 60,000 men, all those ships and all that stuff. The plan was this. Okay, so the America is like, we're going to break free of the British. And the British at this stage in history had conquered a lot of things overseas, including things that had been French and Spanish. And so France and Spain were like, hmm, while they're distracted with America, let's get them. Let's get our stuff back. And Spain's like, Gibraltar, that's the thing we want back. It's in our territory. We should have that. It should be ours. And there's a lot of, you know, Spanish people living there. So they're kind of like, yeah, we, we want to be Spanish again. And there's also a lot of English people there who are like, well, we want to stay English. And, well, France agrees to help Spain. They're like, we'll have a treaty. We'll help you. We won't cease to be your ally until you have Gibraltar back. Ooh, careful what you promise. Because as I've already told you, (laughs) they never get Gibraltar back. So not good. (laughs) Their plan was to make it harder for them to focus on America, make them have fight like a multi-front war, and to eventually invade England directly. They were going to invade England. And that didn't happen because the siege went so badly. (laughs) They kept sending more men to support it because it was not working. They're like, okay, we need to send more men there and more men there. And England was like, well, we need to send a few ships there to try to like get supplies in. They would would send blockade runners. So there were ships, English ships around there as well. So it went so badly that France and Spain had to cancel their invasion of England. And when England lost the war to America, Gibraltar went so well that it improved their negotiating position. So it worked both ways. England's did so well at Gibraltar and was so proud of their results and so demoralizing to Spain and France that it enabled them to lose less when they had to negotiate giving America its independence. On the other hand, England gave so much military support to Gibraltar that it may be the reason why they lost the American Revolution in the first place. So... Without Gibraltar, America might not have existed. It probably still would have, but it might have taken longer. It might not have existed. It would have come in 20 years later. The initial government might have been different. The constitution might have been different. Like all these huge things. And parts of Canada would have been American as well, because that's the part that was part of the negotiating with France and England or France and and Spain that went better for them because Gibraltar went so well. If, If Gibraltar had gone poorly, either they could have lost the war sooner or America would include parts of Canada. (laughs) <laughs> to this day, like we might have Ottawa might be American today, which is just really hard to think about. So this small little spot, and we've seen George and historians and other stories talk about like a siege can just get out of control and you just, you don't want to get stuck in a siege where you don't want to come out the loser. You've committed so much. You you have to keep it going. You have to see it through, even if it looks bad. And ah, that's, I never knew <laughs> that it would, in modern times, it all seemed like a medieval thing or like a middle ages, but no, this was... It makes you wonder, how did Spain lose in the first place? How bad did they have to screw up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they did. And also England really did catapult itself into a world power at the expense of Spain. So 
Spain lost a lot of ships. <laughs> they sure did. They sure did. That was something I had knew very little about. But fast forward to World War II, when it became really big again. In between that, 200 years of tunneling was done. <laughs> 660 feet of tunnels per year. Which, like you said, Sean, that's not a lot of feet. It's a lot of tunnel. That's a long tunnel. But for a year, it's like, well, that's, that takes them a while. But Casterly Rock, 8,000 years of tunneling. You could make a lot of progress in 8,000 years. I mean, yeah. even with old school They didn't techniques. have dynamite, but they might have had magic. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's an interesting thing, too, because uh, one thing I learned of is that old school mining worked better in Gibraltar. It's the same type of material. Limestone is the main rock inside Casterly Rock. Same with Gibraltar. And what, what's interesting is they were using old school methods, which is to heat the limestone with, with flame or something hot, and then they douse it with cold water or just water, and that cracks it. It softens it, and then they can chip away easily. Later, they moved to doing explosions, right? But then they moved back to the old school method because the explosions were too hard to control, and it would destabilize some of the other areas. And they're like, this is too dangerous. The more tunnels they had, the, the, la the, the more dangerous explosions were. They're kind of intuitive, right? Even in modern times, they were using older school techniques. And the techniques changed. This is, like I said, 200 years of tunneling. Like, technology changed in yeah. that time. Even the, the process of the hot, hot and cold water probably got better when we had better pumps and pipelines right, and et cetera. Yeah. Like the water, the water was probably colder than it was like lukewarm probably yeah. in the old school. Mm -hmm. But there's 34 miles of tunnels <laughs> under the rock of Gibraltar, 55 kilometers of tunnels. It was yeah. built to be able to house 16,000 soldiers during World War II. It had three hospitals inside. <laughs> There's three hospitals in there, man. That is wild. And there was something called the Stay Behind Cave. The Allies were worried about losing it to the Nazis because the Nazis were really big on trying to take it. They were like, well, we're going to take that. <laughs> this, this thing that half the world's trade passes by that controls access to the Mediterranean. Yeah, we want that, and we don't want you to have it. During the war, it also controls the flow of battleships and aircraft carriers through the Mediterranean, and it's a landing plate for airplanes to refuel and et cetera as they go to Africa. And anyway, yes, very strategically important. So, and as, But as I've already spoiled you all on it, the Nazis did not take it. England <laughs> hung on to it yet again. I can't believe you gave away the end of World War II with these. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> but this was really neat. The, they were worried enough that they would lose it, that they built a secret cave called the Stay Behind Cave that was going to be like a, a spying on the Nazis post. They're like, okay, if they're going to take it and use it as an observation post, we're going to spy on their spying. And it was lost. They didn't know where it was. And it was rediscovered in 1997. People followed up rumors on it. There was like one of the original eight people who knew about it. It was so secret that almost nobody knew, like eight people knew about it or something like that. And now it's part of like the tour. <laughs> but that's so weird. That's so neat. They, had, they hid a secret tunnel. And the reason that's relevant here is there's got to be some secret tunnels in the rock. We theorized that it's Taiwan who had the tunnel built to Shatayas. Part of the reason that it makes so much sense, not just because of the timing and other things, is that this is a guy who is familiar with the value of tunnels and, and secret hiding spots like that. He grew up in a place that would have these things. So it would be a natural idea for some a Lannister to be like, hmm, secret tunnel. Yeah, we could do that. I, I live in a place that has those. Another something we touched on one time before, but another example of an island like this having a bigger world impact was Okinawa. That, that image of the Marines putting up that flag, that was a battle in Okinawa where Japan knew they had lost the war. And 
as the U- U.S. fleet was, you know, island hopping toward Japan, they put up a big fight there because they wanted to inflict enough casualties, even if they lost, that America might relent on their demand for unconditional surrender. Right. They, they were just looking for a better angle and position after the war in their negotiations. Yeah, a similar case here. They were There were attempts to negotiate people out of Gibraltar. like, look, we're going to besiege you and bombard you with modern battleships. And, and they're like, bring it. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some other features during the siege tunnel years, there's a giant chamber spanning 50 feet, which is 15 meters with a height of 10 meters, and a length of 115 meters is a vehicle maintenance workshop. So they just had like a a motor pool, like a huge engineering mechanic shop just in the middle of the the tunnels, which presumably meant there had to be the ability to drive in and out. There are like tunnel, uh, car tunnels now, like driving through a mountain, like you would see like a toll road there. So there's roads going through them now. So that makes sense as well. You can imagine a parallel to that for Castle Rock. They probably have some stables inside. That Absolutely. Mountain. I was wondering about that. That's one way since there's there's apparently not a, a wheel, a pulley system, at least at the upper levels. But if they're big enough tunnels, yeah, you could ride a horse around inside. And that might sound odd and be like, yeah, but why not? If they've had this long to widen the tunnels and we're only talking about like the the rich person areas where the tunnels might be a little wider and all that. Or the lower levels where people might enter. Sure. And might have gradual slopes going up a few stories, if you will, yeah. that horses could travel on and be stabled. You want them to be able might to... Not get all the way to the top. But. Yeah, and it's even said, it's, that's how it's measured, is like 20 knights can ride abreast, like going in, which presumably they have, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> we know, because we've seen them do that. Yes, we saw 20 it's probably knights. I would love to see a knight ride abreast. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Probably is as relevant for 20 carts to get in as 20 knights, you know. Yeah, that's true. Or out. Yeah, right. well, either way, they wouldn't be to charge out. Like, if it come out one at a time, they're like, ah, the old, what is that? The, I think the onion coined that for, for like Jackie Chan films, the, the, cha- the, the traditional Chinese one at a, sti- one at a time one at files, a time style. fighting style where yeah. martial <laughs> they attack one at a time. It's one on five. Only one, one on one at a time. One on one five. on <laughs> one on one on one. Yeah, only till after he's done with the first one does the next one. It's very polite. Back it's, it's still a test of endurance. It is true. Fair. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> And it's still fun to watch. (laughs) (laughs) It's frustrating to watch. (laughs) Just fast forward this part. (laughs) Rock apes, perhaps more interesting than uh, martial arts films where they fight one at a time, also called Barbary macaques. They're uh, native to to uh, the Rock of Gibraltar, which isn't relevant, but I thought I would throw it in there because it's fun. I don't, actually, I don't think they're native to the Rock of Gibraltar. Oh, they brought, I think they were brought there from Morocco. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. I, I, you're totally right. Yes, that is correct. Of course, there aren't monkeys native to Southern Spain. But it is like they're key to its identity. I think there's even, they're even like, I can't think of the word, like prophetic or mythological or whatever. Like uh. they, there's some saying that like, if those monkeys ever leave Gibraltar, so will the British. And at <laughs> one point, Winston Churchill put effort into preserving their population there. <laughs> Based on that kind of like, like well, uh, this is this is the, the thing superstition. Now, so we got to we got to live up to it. Like yeah. we didn't start the superstition, <laughs> but we got to continue it. There are also Neanderthals. There's been Neanderthal skulls found there. So it's had inhabitants since who knows how long, 500,000 years ago, maybe. Uh, the Moors took it in 711 and kept it till 1309. Then they lost it and took it again from 1333 to 1462, which is this whole region, not just Gibraltar. And the reason How they... How long did 711 have it? 711 had it for a while. <laughs> they dispensed lots of tasty beverages like Sean's. And, but no, that, that little period where they didn't have it, 
they only had the rock. And that just shows how powerful it is because they were able to reconquer all that just because they couldn't be kicked out of this huge fortress. And so they were able to emerge, reconquer, and hold it for another 130 years before Spain finally kicked them back out for good. But of course, with that long of a presence of more than 700 years, it's had a permanent impact, the, the architecture, the culture. Yeah, so Moorish Spain is quite visible to this day. Well, bucket list for me, certainly. See all that. And a lot of it was used for filming. It's, it's popular for movies and Game of Thrones TV shows as well. It has some filming there. So you'll be seeing it again, even if you don't remember having seen it before. Another fun, quick comparison is the Assassin's Fortress. Now, there's a lot of tall tales told about the, the old man of the mountain, the Hashishin, the assassins of Alamut Castle, mostly by their enemies. So a lot of it's just blown out of proportion and kind of fantastical. But this castle was a mountain fortress that was amidst hostile territory. That was their thing. The Nizari Ismaili state was characterized by having mountain fortresses completely surrounded by hostile territory. They're just like a chain of connected mountain fortresses across this land where everywhere else they had nothing. Or maybe they just had controlled like a valley nearby. And so the Assassin's Fortress has elements of the Erie, because it's on top, right? River Run, because it's actually got built around three rivers. And Castle Rock, because it's large and interior, has like a library, a famous library and that was inside it that was destroyed by the Mongols. Those jerks, again, destroying books. Ah. Yeah, of course, the people who eventually did kick it were the Mongols. Like, they held out against all these different sultans, and Saladin couldn't do anything to them, apparently. Uh, he tried, and they had, like, a loose agreement to not mess with each other, although that might be yet another tall tale. Eventually, they were, yeah, beaten by the Mongols. Hat tip to Liet Rubenfeld, who told us about Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is also was very hard to take. The Crusaders struggled to get it. Richard the Lionheart couldn't do it got as far as Acre, and Jerusalem's farther inland, couldn't do it. The official symbol of the city of Jerusalem is the Lion of Judah, the symbol of the tribe of Judah and the kingdom of Judah, capital Jerusalem. Lion symbols and statues are all over Jerusalem. So this is still an important symbol. And they call Jerusalem, it's like one of its nicknames is, the, is Jerusalem of gold or the mountainous city of gold. So that sounds like a pretty strong one-to-one -one parallel. Last but not least, this is perhaps the most amazing of all. The Sandung Cave, a.k.a. the Cave of the Mountain River. It is the largest cavern in the world. It, it, it stretches for over three miles, 650 feet wide, walls of 200 meters height, <laughs> 656 feet. A 40-story skyscraper could be built in it. This was discovered in 1991. So it's not near, doesn't have the 8,000-year exploration of Castle Rock. So very much the opposite in that regard. It wasn't explored until 2009. A Vietnamese farmer, again, a farmer, finds millions of years' biggest cave in the world, just stumbled on it. Like, oh, hey, look at that. <laughs> the locals were a little afraid of it, but it's really hard to reach, it's really remote. There's only been, it costs like $3,000 to take a tour there because you got to go like all this long way. There's stalactites in it that are 230 feet tall. <laughs> stalactite that's just like what the hell if martin had read this stuff i'd be like here it goes yeah here goes george with, his, with yeah. his giant <laughs> things it's like nope yeah see i wonder if george knows about this because <laughs> it was like i said it wasn't explored to 2009 so he invented castle rock before this was explored and these these facts were not out in the world so he didn't know about is this. this is this in china it's in vietnam Vietnam. yeah okay. near the border with laos there's a i think it's in madagascar, madagascar. Okay. it has a desert that underneath 
is one of the biggest lakes in the world. It's just this huge irony that there's just this arid, dried out desert, but there's like a, a, an open cavern underneath that water has trickled and been preserved in. And I, I don't know for sure how long it's been known about it, but it's like something anyway, out of, just reminding me of that. It's like something bit. out of Dune. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so inside this Sun Dune cave is a huge lake, several rivers. It has its own clouds sometimes. Clouds can form in it. There's all sorts of new animals were discovered in there, like completely new species. Monkeys, new species of monkeys, foxes, butterflies. Oh, really? Yeah. Holy crap. Sightless fish. (laughs) Some sort of unidentified, strange, skittering swimming creature existed. They haven't, they're like, what the heck is that? (laughs) Like, it's the children of the forest. (laughs) Yeah, so there's there's some completely new animal that runs and swims they're like what is that and they don't know what it is yet still to this day like we don't know what that is (laughs) some strange cave animal so this is a whole new frontier y'all the caves of the world are still providing us with fascinating mysteries so there's 300 million year old fossils in here this cave is is like as old as the rocky mountains or something like that here's a quote from mysteriousuniverse.org those who have seen the cave say that the sheer scale of it is hard to comprehend without seeing it in person and that it is difficult to describe in words how humbling and awe-inspiring the experience is personally the only the, the the time i felt most humbled by something huge was the grand canyon which is it's just so big and it's a hole. It's the biggest hole, giant hole. This is like that, I guess, but inside. That's what he said. You know? That's what he said. That's what he said, yeah. <laughs> also, I can tell you about a time I felt humbled by something huge. <laughs> but it's not appropriate. Could you tell us about that time? <laughs> it's not appropriate, she said. <laughs> you got to figure there would be unique species living in Casterly Rock, too. I wonder if, like, they don't, they're not as good as cataloging these things in Westeros. They don't have the technology or the science for that. But still, got to imagine some, some unique features like that, the depths of Casterly Rock. We have some real quick fictional inspirations here. Stephen King has a recurring location called Castle Rock. Cujo takes place in Castle Rock. The I, I'm not big on my Stephen King, but if you look up Castle Rock, Stephen King... It's a huge list of his stories that take place in it or mention it. Isn't that even like the production company? This is movies? I think I feel so, like like, yeah. yeah. And George is very aware of Stephen King. And since the 70s, this has been the name in place. So it'd be pretty unlikely for George not to know about it. So maybe there's a little nod here. Uh, I think there probably is. But also the Mines of Moria. J.R.R. Tolkien, I mean... We just wrote an episode for In Deep Geek where we compared the Minds of Moria to the Night Fort. There's a lot of homages in there. So it's George is a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. But this also, in retrospect, makes the Minds of Moria seem less impressive <laughs> when I read about the Rock of Gibraltar and the <laughs> Sandun Cave. And it's like, yeah, it's incredible. Like the the seeing it on screen, because the way they portray it in Lord of the Rings movies, it's really amazing to see like these huge caverns and these vaults and galleries and like the Arkenstone and these these veins of gold and all their mining techniques it's really awesome but they of course their thing was they delved so deep to unleash the balrog which the lannisters haven't done that yet yet right yes <laughs> the balrog is coming for the lannisters there's there's maybe more of a metaphorical balrog coming for which the balrog is meant to be somewhat metaphorical too like corruption and you unleash this on yourself and create this evil in the world and all that but that is not our subject for the day so let's get into the actual history of the rock itself and have a quote referring to the early times. The rock has been a habitation for men for thousands of years. Before the coming of the first men, it seems likely that the children of the forest and giants made their homes in the great sea-carved caverns at its base. 
Bears, lions, wolves, and bats have also been known to make their lairs within, along with countless lesser creatures. Remember we mentioned the Neanderthals earlier. That is a, a reference here to think about. We've made comparisons to Neanderthals and giants and some of the older human species. So the sea carved out a lot of the lower levels, perhaps, we would think, because there's watery caves. We're, we're told about that. But the higher level up stuff, a lot of that would be human. Now, some of that would be water as well. Snow melts or just rain, thousands of years of water doing its thing. That's With all that time, it would make some some passageways and then humans could widen them. And But I wonder, do they, maybe the children still have access? Maybe there's some hidden, like smaller tunnels that people can't fit through that they still have ways in. Who knows? I mean... It's got to be so huge and vast and not completely under explored. And if the landers just don't write down like maps, then that information could get lost. And I don't know. Yeah. Now, here's a little mythological tale, a legend or myth, whatever you want to call it. It sounds like the Castleys must have thought themselves ordained by a higher pl- a power or something like that to have gotten so lucky. I mean, and the legend itself reflects that this does show some kind of favor from the gods, although which gods... That's an open question. Legend tells us that the first Casterly Lord was a huntsman, Corlos, son of Castor, who lived in a village near to where Lannisport stands today. When a lion began preying upon the village's sheep, Corlos tracked it back to its den, a cave in the base of the rock. Armed only with a spear, he slew the lion and his mate, but spared her newborn cubs an act of mercy that so pleased the old gods, for this was long before the seven came to Westeros, that they sent a sudden shaft of sunlight deep into the cave, and there, in the stony walls, Corlos beheld the gleam of yellow gold, a vein as thick as a man's waist. Nina writes, it's notable that the Cashleys are rewarded with Cashley Rock and its gold specifically because Corlos showed empathy and mercy to the innocent. Corlos had every reason to kill the lions since at least one had been preying upon the village's sheep, a danger to the survival of the community. Yet while Corlos could easily have thought the cubs would grow up to do the same and enjoyed a temporary physical advantage over them, which he wouldn't have had when they grew up, obviously, nevertheless refused to kill them too. Corlos would not sentence those cubs to death for the sins of their parents, even if their nature suggested they would pose a danger to his community in the future. The moral good of showing mercy to the innocent outweighed the practical, even legal good of eliminating a future threat to the larger world. This choice is the source of the Casterly's divine reward. Mercy confirmed as literally more precious in the eyes of the specifically old gods than a mountain of gold. Time and again, George has praised this sort of choice in the main novels. Think of Davos, who argued that the life of Edric Storm was worth everything against the life of a kingdom, or Daenerys, who refused to kill the child hostages even when the Sons of the Harpy carried out terrorist attacks, or Ned, who hid and protected baby John and argued against assassinating Daenerys and gave Cersei the chance to flee with his children before Robert had them killed. George may praise this mentality, right, this sort of moral decision, but he doesn't exactly reward it. Ned got his head chopped off. Not right John's away. You're right. Yeah. Killed. Danny's things aren't. She had to marry someone. She doesn't look. Things are going well for her. Like most of these scenarios are not exactly playing out with reward. You know? I agree. Yeah. Although the reward is. I almost got thrown in jail. Yeah. The reward is is there in terms of car- is carried forward. It isn't the kind of karma that plays out within a lifetime. It's like, well, the star- yeah. people are still fighting for Ned Stark because of that type of behavior. Right, even after true, he's dead. True. Whereas the, the works of Tywin Lannister are in ruins. Supposedly they could be restored perhaps because the wealth is still there and all that. But yeah, and Nina hit me over the head with this comparison here, which is think about the direwolf scene in chapter one. 
Oh, how oh, similar really is that? Right? I was like, oh man, that's a yeah. really good comparison, Ned. At first, he's like, no, nah, you got to dire wolves. You got to kill them. But then John appeals to the old gods. He's like, look, mm-hmm. there's one for each of your... And he, Ned's like, oh, crap. You're right, man. I don't want to mess with the gods. Appeal to a higher power. Like, mm-hmm. Ned is the higher power there. But John's like, actually, there's a higher power than you, dad. And, he, and, and Ned's like, you're right. And they do care about this and, yeah, mercy and all that and animals. And so, so I mentioned at the beginning of the quote, like, we're not, it's not clear that this is the old gods. It probably is, though, given this. Like, the, the respect for nature and animal life and all that but it's it's not entirely certain that's another thought i had too it's interesting that that the maester doesn't take the opportunity couldn't the old gods have had some power and sway even before the the you know new men came across to say like yeah they could have they didn't have power before you're admitting to the power of the old gods and not your own yeah that's true that's true yeah Uh, you wonder how that would come up because like if maester lewin had been there when the direwolves were found i wonder if he would have thought of the casterly rock legend here and been like oh this is really similar but no this is just comes up so much later that's really cool and referring back to your point about people being punished for it now to be fair in this case we it wasn't Carlos who lost. It was his descendants that eventually lost Cashwalk, perhaps hundreds of years later. Maybe they were crappy people too. I mean, Carlos sounded decent, but maybe his descendants weren't. Who knows? Maybe they were spoiled by all this wealth, corrupted by it, and we don't know. But here's another quote taking us forward in time a bit. The truth of the, ta- the, truth of the tale is lost in the midst of time. By the way, that should be a tongue twister we make people do with Irish wristwatch. <laughs> the truth of the tale is lost in the midst of time. <laughs> But we cannot doubt Corlos or some progenitor of what would become House Casterly found gold inside the rock and soon began to mine there. To defend his treasure against those who would make off with it, he moved inside the cave and fortified its entrance. As years and centuries passed, his descendants delved deeper and deeper into the earth, following the gold, whilst carving halls and galleries and stairways and tunnels into the rock itself, transforming the gigantic stone into mighty fastness that dwarf every castle in Westeros. Stephen Atwell, again, raceforthetheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheir
collapsed the entrance to the tunnel where the person it knew and his <laughs> books were stored Whoa. and now they can't get there but how much more might have been lost and you gotta know you gotta think thousands of years that type of thing had to happen at least a couple that's times. a great idea sean the the, the, per, the the maps themselves getting cut off from the rest of the structure that's that's, <laughs> that's a great like mini story there i like it <laughs> so while well, say the irie is higher and other castles might have more people directly in them or around them? Probably not around them, though, because Lannisport is so close to Castle Rock. The only real comparable thing is, is King's Landing, only in terms of population, and only Harrenhal is perhaps comparable in size. And that's not a really easy comparison, because Harrenhal is completely built. There's no mountain it's built into. It's completely constructed from the ground up, whereas Castle Rock is a mountain. So it's hard to compare that in the first place. Nina says, yeah, the best comparison is the early rains, just as the Casterlies moved inside the rock to be closer to their main source of wealth. The rains made a rich system of mines and caves and tunnels as their own subterranean seat. So below rather than above, or as the Castle Rock is mostly above ground, but still a similar concept. And I would assume that there are multiple other castles in the West that do this. I, I wouldn't assume that those are the only two castles that did that. Got to be right. There's got to be someone's in, some of them in Dorne and other places that, that if they're near mountains or in, in, if the ground supports it, they might have extensive caverns. The wall has extensive caverns beneath yeah. it. Yeah, the wormways. Like, yeah, you're right. The Winterfell's lower levels of the crypt aren't, we don't know how far down it goes. So there's, you're right, there's a lot of similar George has given himself room for <laughs> things under. He's given himself big basement space in a lot of these castles. It does make way more sense for Castle Rock or any place where mines would be because there's this double motivation. Like oh, you're digging yeah, down yeah. to get the gold anyway. Yes, that's and true. Now all, and you've already fortified the entrances to protect yourself and your wealth inside. So it like feeds on itself. Yeah, it's like every ton, new tunnel you others, dig, you can afford to build a, yeah. even more, yeah. Yeah, it is self fulfilling in a lot of ways. You're right. Normally, you're just hollowing out tunnels and costs a lot of money, and you. But in this case, it's paying for itself, or not, if not more. Yeah, yeah. It might yeah. be profitable, like they're they're building houses and making money off of it, even though they're not renting. And them as out. the <laughs> as the population is growing too, they need more space, right? If yeah. their plan is to for their families to live inside to be safe, and we're digging to get the gold, and now the family's bigger, so they live where we dug. So now we dig more to get more gold and have more space. And it, yeah, yeah. I would guess that like Silver Hill and Deep Den are two that Ooh. are probably. Greatly, I'm deep just based on the names. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about the first time Castle Rock is mentioned, both in uh, the main series and the World of Ice and Fire. Let's start with Catelyn One, A Game of Thrones. There was small love between him and the Queen's family, Catelyn knew. The Lannisters of Castle Rock had come late to Robert's cause when victory was all but certain, and he had never forgiven them. Well, if the price for Robert's company is an infestation of Lannisters, so be it. It sounds as though Robert is bringing half his court. I never thought about the irony in that line before. The price for Robert's company turned out to be quite a bit higher than an infestation of Lannisters. <laughs> <laughs> for one, the part of the price was being named Hand. Though, to be fair, they had a strong suspicion that would happen. That wasn't entirely unexpected. Two, it's funny to think about how Bran catching Jamie and Cersei having sex was like, hey, they're trying to increase the Lannister infestation right before our <laughs> eyes. A, a small child's eyes. That's another unexpected cost of a Lannister infestation brand getting thrown out a window. Like, he didn't, Ned didn't see that coming either, but hey. It's an early twist in the story. Almost no one saw that coming, right? That's one of the, the, one of the early hooks of A Game of Thrones, right after the prologue. I, I have argued, by the way, a lot of things that happened in this story and, and in the real world 
they are almost destined to happen. They're, they're pretty likely to happen. The one scenario where we see it happen, if it was somehow you could like go back and change time, that thing probably would happen anyway. A lot of times I point to the moment when like Sansa and Joffrey stumble onto Micah and Arya. Yeah. And I think, oh, if it wasn't for that, like, well, if it wasn't for that, Joffrey's still going to be a jerk. There's still going to be, Arya's still going to stir trouble. Yeah. There would have just been some confrontation later. It was destined. You're right. <laughs> Rand, this little kid running around, climbing all over the place, Probably going to fall eventually. It's not that crazy. Which is what his mother anyway. was saying. Like, yeah, now the part about discovering yes. Jamie and Cersei. Now that part. Yes. That's yeah. very specific. And that did not have to happen. Somebody would have discovered them. Moving on. We have another quote here uh, referring to legendary founders. Let's use this as a jump off point. It is best to remember that when we speak of these legendary founders of the realm, we speak merely of some early domains generally centered on a high seat, such as Casterly Rock or Winterfell that in time incorporated more and more lands and power into their grasp. If Garth Greenhand ever ruled what he claimed was the kingdom of the Reach, it is doubtful its writ was anything more than notional beyond a fortnight's ride from his halls. But from such petty domains arose the mightier kingdoms that came to dominate Westeros in the millennia to come. So that's the first mention of Castle Rock in The World of Ice and Fire. It is steadily mentioned in every single book, and I mean every single one. All the Duncan Eggs, Princess and the Queen, The Rogue Prince, World of Ice and Fire, Fire and Blood, not surprising. But good chance you maybe hadn't thought about that. In a sense, it's like trying to talk about Egypt without the pyramids coming up or China without the Great Wall coming up. It's too big a deal to go very long without being referenced, even amongst like the locals of Westeros. Like, yeah, eventually Castle Rock is going to... It's just too big and rich and important. It's the location mentioned the most without ha having been on page through a POV. It comes up almost as much as Harrenhal. And we've seen Harrenhal a lot of times. It comes up more than Castle Black, which... We've seen a lot of times as well. I think Castle Black is like the fifth most visited location. Harrenhal, I think, is third or fourth. Winterfell is like first or second. King's Landing is, is right there. And Sean, you wanted to know which is actually mentioned the most? Yeah, aside from whether or not it's been on page, yeah. which, what's come up the most often. I, I, I was guessing it might be Winterfell or The Wall, just because, especially if you count mentions of people being there, yeah. there's so many scenes they place there. I, I wondered if it might be Marine. We've had a lot of time with Danny there and... There's like yeah. <laughs> there's over like 800 mentions of Winterfell, not counting Fire and Blood. But I don't know how many times the Wall is mentioned. It, you can't do you can't. It, it's hard to be that precise with your search because Wall is all walls. You can't. I can't. It could refer to things that aren't the Wall. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know how many times the Wall is mentioned compared to Winterfell. So that's so it's one of those two. Just thinking about thought processes as we read and analyze all this, I, I wonder if it would be mentioned, how much more or less it would be mentioned if we were there. Mm. Like, I wonder if people yeah. are more like to mention something that's far away than the place where they're at. I think probably it would be mentioned a lot more if they were there, but... I think you're totally right, which is why Winterfell is mentioned. So it's also more important to the story, I suppose, at least right now, yeah. probably just in general. But yeah, so it's that's hard to... So it makes it hard to, to figure out because it is more important and we've been there a lot. So. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's a little interesting question. George taking some questions from the fans back in the day. This is from the SSM, August 23rd, the year 2000. Sean will read the question and Shea will read the answer. Now that Tywin is dead, does this mean that Castle Rock goes to Cersei as his only eligible child or to Kevin? George, Cersei has the strongest claim. It is not impossible that the Rock will be a bone of contention among the Lannisters, however. Mm, yes, Lannister succession struggle, you see. Yes, mm, indeed. Nina says, worth pointing out that both the Ro both A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragon appendices refer to Cersei as Lady of Castle Rock, although Tyrion obviously thinks of himself 
not unreasonably, as the rightful Lord of Castle Rock, and of course, signs himself as such in the Second Sons book, <laughs> as he's as he signs up and as he's you know promising all this money. In fact, Nina suggests Kevin may have moved his family to Lannisport, as he suggests his wife is living there, specifically to not look like he's trying to claim Castle Rock for himself as. This person suggests Kevin could have a claim to it, and Cersei, being a little paranoid, Kevin might be like, I don't want to make her think I'm honing in on her territory. It doesn't take her much to think that I'm doing that, so I'm just going to lay off. And plus, he also mentions his wife is really not political, not a court person, so he's doing this for his family. It's one of the reasons that Kevin comes off sometimes as a decent guy, even though other times he comes off as horrible. So <laughs> it's because he is good to his wife and his kids. But it would make sense for him to be worried about appearing to usurp his brother's land from his niece that he never got along with very well. But if Cersei is ruled guilty of treason and Tommen becomes illegitimate, then Kevin would have a really good claim. So Cersei wouldn't be wrong to consider how close he is to this and to think, well, maybe he wanted it. But of course, that would now fall to Kevin's descendants if anyone, one of them wants to make a claim. Yeah, I hadn't gone down this thought process before. Who would that be? Who's Kevin's eldest son? <laughs> Lancel, <laughs> who has now joined the faith <laughs> and is not really interested. Yeah. He didn't even want to get married, and he's who? Yeah, it's tricky because he's lost a lot of his. Yeah, he's lost a lot of his children. But Lancel is the one that's still one of the ones that's still around. I forget. Does he have another child still alive? There's so the many fact other. That we don't know. Makes me think we that do. I just not remember. direction George is going with the story. Though. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. The fact that you and I are like struggling to think of it means I've. I think that's an indication that it's not going to be a concern of the main plot. Well, we have Damon Lannister yeah, well, running are, it right now. Yeah, well, his other kids were Willem and uh, yeah, Willem and, the and, one that was and murdered. Martin and then little Janae. Yeah, yeah, maybe she could marry <laughs> someone and and they could push make a push for it. Who knows? Yeah, and there's maybe Tyrek out there somewhere if uh, Varys has him hiding or something or is out there and obviously Tyrion too I'm saying it maybe that's the, the, the fact that we're not quite sure how that's going to pan out means that it might not be something that Martin's going to focus on but maybe it's part of why it's taking us so long to write the next book because it's a whole new branch of storyline <laughs> yeah you know? got to work out Castle Rock he said that we expect to see Castle Rock at some point hey you, you're maybe that's why we're going to see it because we're going to have to see this new political entry come about your timing is impeccable Sean read this next quote from <laughs> November 12th, 2000, which is only a few weeks, months after this last quote. This is from Westeros.org user Linda Elaine. GRM started giving descriptions. As we already know, we will see Castle Rock in the next book. He said <laughs> it was basically in the rock, but there were fortifications there. I don't know the exact words, but he said something that brought a picture to mind of some walls and ramparts framing the mouth of a cave. He also said, as Brosan previously shared, that Castle Rock should be thought of as like the Rock of Gibraltar, but bigger because this was fantasy. Of course, I'm referring to the fact that you said we're George said we would see it, right? And here we go. As we already know, we'll see Castle Rock in the next book. Now, that didn't turn out to be right because this was the year 2000. So the next book was A Feast for Crows. We did not see. <laughs> but he has said, he has repeated this claim that we're going to see Castle Rock eventually. And it makes sense given a lot of things, uh, which we will see during this episode. It also adds to my belief that Martin has lots of stuff spread out, written all over. Yes. And it, however long it takes from the last book to the next book won't necessarily be that long till the one after that, because he's probably 
piece a lot of the next one together in the process of getting this one. Yeah. Out. If you already had plans for Castle Rock that didn't make that book, you probably had plans for other stuff that didn't make that book that will be in the next one. And he has stuff written now that won't be in that one, but the next after. Absolutely. I think these plans have probably been in place for a while. He's probably had Casterly Rock. It's so big and powerful, and he invented it right away. It seems like it was meant to play a larger role. It's not a guarantee, but given he's also said, we'll see it, we can be pretty confident that he's going to stick to that. There's always a chance he changes his mind. I mean, he, he did originally expect to take us to Ashai, and now, he, now he's changed his mind on that. But we haven't heard him change his mind on Castle Rock, and Castle Rock is a hell of a lot closer than Ashai. <laughs> so, he's got new ways for us to see it, too. Like yeah, he maybe puts in a Dunkin' Egg books or whatever else. And the new TV shows, like that wouldn't be on page, but yeah. there's a lot of like, it's going to be important in House of the Dragon. Well, it... It's important during the Dance of the Dragons and could be important in House of the Dragon. They certainly cast the Lannister twins and other things. So let's talk about the region it's in. Some geography, some features, some qualities of the rock itself and the nearby area. It sits on the ocean road. It's very close to Lannisport. essentially commands it. Like, if someone else ruled Lannisport, they would probably lose it to whoever ruled the rock. Like, it would, they can easily attack you whenever they want, but you could never attack them. They're in this huge fortress and you have this wide open city. Yeah, the rock controls... Lannisport indirectly. It's unclear what level of control they directly have, but it's pretty clear that they could exert control over it. And if they wanted to expand that, they have the military power. It seems likely they could do that, but it's not well defined at this point. Probably another example of being almost opposite of the Stepstones it just would not be worth either of those entities warring with the other one. Yeah. They have too, so much more to gain by just being allied with each other than being opposed that to each other. That is true. Yeah, that is very true. Here is a quote. Now, remember from what we saw before, George was giving generic descriptions in the year 2000, but this is after he's had time to sit down and write it down and put it in the world of ice and fire. Casterly Rock, the ancient seat of House Lannister, is no ordinary castle. Although crowned with towers and turrets and watchtowers, with stone walls and oaken gates and iron portcullises guarding its every means of egress, this ancient fortress is, in truth, a colossal rock beside the Sunset Sea, a rock that some say looks like a lion in repose when the sun sets and the shadows fall. So it is just utterly huge, possibly above the clouds now. A ring fort on the top, but some people guess that that's above the cloud level. Now, we can't assume that clouds are the same level relative to Earth. It's a good guess. Like, I would assume they probably are, but on the other hand, maybe we shouldn't assume that because that would be a weird place to build a watchtower if it's above clouds and you wouldn't be able to see anything. Like, why would they do that? (laughs) I I wish I remembered who said it in the chat, but earlier someone brought up the idea that when Tyrion was in the Eyrie and looking at the sky cell, he should have had memories of sightseeing in Casterly Rock because you would think that he would, and the same when he's at the wall, perhaps, that he would have some experience being at tall heights like that. That is a very good point. Yeah, maybe a little bit of something George overlooked or could have included in Tyrion's yeah. memory. That wouldn't necessarily be a mistake, but it would have been it really good. It would have fit good. really well for yeah, him to think about mostly. those things. Maybe he will eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, it's it's possible that he might not have had that experience. I, I don't know if I can get this out right, but a lot of Castle Rock is indoors. Yeah. Right? That's, we even have a quote coming up about... Well, there's watchtowers uh, on top. Maybe I mean, maybe he just never well, went yeah, up the there, but like... Well, it seems oh, yeah. like Tyrion, as the curious sort of person he is, that unless Tywin was like, yeah, no, you cannot, yeah. I think Tyrion would have gone. Yeah. I, I really yeah, think that, that he's curious enough. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so it's a little bit of a mystery. And, oh, I was going to say, for the cloud levels, there could be... A, clouds can be higher and lower. Yeah, they can be there I mean? some of the time. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and, like, again, this mountain is really big, but it's not Mount Everest high, which right. is... 
almost always completely in clouds or you yeah. know highly affected by that. You hardly ever see the top uh, from the ground, yeah. But yeah, it, it, it could be in certain seasons, certainly in the cloud sometimes. It could be a case where, like, the guys who are the guards, they go, they're like, all right, well, let's go to our guard tower today. Can you see, how are the clouds today? If the clouds are, like, particularly thick, they go to a lower vantage point. And if they're visible from the top, well, may as well go all the way to the top. So maybe it's just, like, they have, it's rich, it's existed for 8,000 years, they, they surely have multiple observation posts way up there. It's yeah. not like they're, people are going to climb the mountain to assault the observation post. That would be pointless or weird and they'd see them coming. Mm. <laughs> That's what the, and difficult. Yeah. Yeah, you'd see them coming like miles and miles away. That's the point of these watchtowers. It would be the second tallest building on earth if it were a building. Right now, I know it's, it's hard to measure large, but height is simpler. And Ashan, you, you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, how large a building is, there's different ways you can measure that. Like, the amount of area or volume that it has or the floor space. Like some of the largest buildings in the world are like uh, ship and aircraft construction buildings, like oh, the NASA's yeah, rocket yeah. facility. Uh, is It's only one story. It's like one of the tallest buildings in the world, but it's only one story. It's just one huge open area. And the Pentagon, by the way, I, I thought the Pentagon was one of the biggest buildings in the world, however you measure it. But there's this building in China, the New Century Global Center. It's three times bigger than a Pentagon. <laughs> the Pentagon's, it's hard to understand how big the Pentagon yeah, is. Huge. It's a mile around. It's a mile around. It's seven stories. It's massive. It's the largest. It has the most office space of any building oh, in the world. Interesting. Uh, or at least it did at one point. I'm not sure if that's still yeah, true. But anyway, just to give you an idea, <laughs> there's this building in China that's three times bigger than that. It has its own coast has its own shore they built like a water park Jeez. thing with like sand and waves and like multiple hotels the boeing construction factory the everett factory in washington state it has its own police department fire <laughs> station and hospital Jeez. like thousands of people work there they, these businesses are really really massive wow and i think castle rock is bigger depending on how you measure it like the, the so. volume of the mountain is definitely bigger than all these but how much floor space is in a caverns within maybe not for example, the Pentagon's parking space, parking lot holds over 8,000 cars. <laughs> so you know, if you think that's one person per car, then that's 8,000 people can fit in the Pentagon. Could 8,000 people fit in Castle Rock? When, Probably. When you think about like the, the family that lives there has gotten big and their servants and the miners and the people working the harbor. And then they've got to have service food. There's probably some yeah. gardens inside of there, yes. water and all the people that work, all that stuff. It's got to be thousands of guards yeah i think so yeah i think so etc etc yeah and we heard we saw you could have sixteen thousand soldiers stashed in gibraltar and this is larger so yeah i think you're right i think that just like immediately tells you there's got more room for that for eight thousand one thing i was thinking about we talked in the past a little bit about like these super big buildings that martin has made and in in castle rock like how do you get up and down how do you get water supplies (laughs) up and down especially that one another thing i started thinking about is like there's got to be a ventilation system. Oh, like yeah. Martin did account for like a sewage system. Yes. But if you want to warm the place and start a fire, where does that smoke go? Yeah. Like deep in the tunnels, oxygen would start to get used up by people. So there's got to be some kind of ventilation system too, which might even be a vulnerability if someone could figure out or understand how it worked. Yeah, uh, you. that's very true. They would have to have ventilation. They would have to have like lots of airflow and they might use some of that heat to like heat to they might channel some of that heat to other areas like there's forges yeah there's blacksmiths yeah. right so that's that's really dirty and the mining on top of that is just yeah the bad air they would have to have, that would be something they'd have to account for you're totally right as nina was saying it's like this feat this wonder of the world but when you start to consider the logistics 
even more so. Even like more usually so. you see things like this from a distance, but when you start to realize what it takes to get the infrastructure and working for people to live there and everything, it becomes even more and more of an impressive feat. 8,000 years to, of trial and error to figure it all out too, to get it right. What human endeavors can match that? Like what have we been trying for 8,000 years like in one location? I, I mean, there's gotta be one mm-hmm. or two examples, but it's just nothing really that's- Yeah, yeah approach so it maybe like the Great Wall of China. Like the things yeah. we can think of that approach it are wonders of the world, yeah, you know? you're right. They're, they're at that same top level of amazing. <laughs> And one thing we think about with like towers and castles is they like they are wider at the bottom and narrow to the top. But that's not really the case here. Maybe it is on the inside. But Cashew Rock, the mountain, all the artwork depicting it, like if you look at Ted Naismith's amazing picture of it from the calendar or just any of the other art that is out there to depicting it, it doesn't really narrow at the top. It's just a large slab and it's, it's the same at the base it is at the top. Similar, not the same, but close. So there's not any much narrowing at all. Now, here's another ancient curious feature that is very evocative. Almost two leagues from west to east, it is riddled throughout with tunnels, dungeons, storerooms, barracks, halls, stables, stairways, courtyards, balconies, and gardens. There is even a godswood of sorts. Through the werewood, though the werewood that grows there is a queer, twisted thing whose tangled roots have all but filled the cave where it stands choking out all other growth. So that is, uh, there's some symbolism there, choking out all other growth. They get all the money, like the Lannisters are so dominant at the expense of the rest of the region. Yeah, that's something we talked about in our Religion and Magic, Werewood Tour episode a lot, but it stuck with me was like looking at how werewoods and heart trees like symbolized and the family that lives there looking like like with the White Harbor tree, et cetera. Yeah, the White Harbor tree is described almost the same way of filling up the chamber it was planted in and choking out the growth that looks, it's almost described, it's a little bit like Wyman Manderley. It's, now, it's like described as like overweight, like it is what a tree would look like if it was largely overweight. Similar energy here, especially because you have this sort of comparison to wealth and corruption and dominance and being taken over from a first man family to becoming an Andal family. Like the Manderleys were an ancient first man family that adopted very strongly knighthood and the green hand business and all this reachman culture that they brought to the North and kept even after all these hundreds of years. So it's, it's a lot in common here. Now, what's interesting though, is where this werewood would be in the cave. This is something that, that, Stumped me a little. Ah, stumped me a little bit. I didn't mean that, but I did. (laughs) Because you can't have trees growing in caves unless there's some sunlight. Leafy plants don't grow in caves with very little exception unless they have sunlight. Moss, fungi, sure, they're, they're happy in the dark. But most plants need light. It's photosynthesis, right? But you, what you do see a lot of is roots. Roots can grow into caves where there's moisture and goodness, where our, the other part of the tree might be out. What's really interesting is there's like a twilight zone. It's called, there's like three zones in a cave. There's the night zone, the twilight zone, and the, and the day zone. The day zone is right at the entrance to the cave where there's definitely sunlight. And you often see very interesting plant life right at the mouth of the cave because it's in that mid-zone where there's some of this moisture maybe from the cave versus the outside sunlight and the roots can go in the cave or the leaves can be outside so you get this sort of proto-zone and plants work together the the stuff inside works with the stuff outside and but and co2 from plants in caves 
is part of what forms more caves because that forms the CO2 that gives carbonic acid, gets into the water. And when the water is forming new pathways, the acid in there makes it more effective at dissolving the limestone. And that is a lot of where the channels and caves of Cashley Rock would have come from. The lower levels formed by the waterways, the sea breaking through, and the upper levels formed by rain mixed with this carbonic acid and snow melt, perhaps. I don't know if there's snow at the top, but there's definitely rain. Nina says, I wonder if the twisted werewood is meant as a reflection of the Lannisters corrupting the blessing of the old gods by taking the rock away from the Casterlies. The Casterlies were the family designated by the old gods to have Casterly Rock. Their founders' commitment to empathy and mercy making them worthy to receive a literal mountain of gold. Len the Clever was not the one chosen by the gods, but one who had violated and broken the blessing given to the Casterlies by the gods to claim it for himself. Accordingly, the heart tree, supposed to be the center of worship of the old gods, would become quote, queer and twisted, a sign that the gods had withdrawn from both this heart tree and Casterly Rock itself after their chosen inheritors had been driven out by Lan and the rock and taken over by his descendants. That's a, that's a great interpretation. The fact that it's queer and twisted is it's no longer inhabited by the old gods or it isn't what it once was. Maybe there's only a, a, a fragment of them there. They've abandoned it. They've left it. I don't know. And, and werewoods don't die of, age, of old age. Like not all trees do, or at least they don't in a span of time that we recognize, <laughs> but a lot of them do. A lot of regular old trees last only a, the span of a human life or a few hundred years, but not werewoods. I was wondering if I feel like maybe I'm stretching a little bit the idea that it chokes out all other growth. I wonder if the, the Lannisters' wealth is growing, but is their culture, is their wisdom, all other maybe growth not. beyond the wealth has been choked out. That's a good know? point. Yeah, it's all about money. It's all about just continuing this, yeah. holding on to this power keeping it in place. Like that's something that Tywin is just so aggressive about, like maintaining, not even slipping a little bit. <laughs> like, nope, our reputation, our ferocity, everything. Yeah, our pride. Hmm. One of the most important features from a logistical perspective is the entrance to the place, which is apparently there's just the one. They've There may have been others in the past, but wisely for them anyway, maybe not good for humanity. That's less clear. They've sealed it off into this one place called the Lion's Mouth, and here's a description. The Lion's Mouth, the huge natural cavern that forms the main entrance into the rock, arches 200 feet high from floor to ceiling. Over the centuries, it has been widened and improved upon, and it is now said that 20 horsemen can ride abreast up its broad steps. Casterly Rock has never been taken by storm or siege. No castle in the Seven Kingdoms is larger, richer, or better defended. Legends say that Visenya Targaryen, upon seeing it, thanked the gods that King Lauren rode forth to face her brother Aegon on the Field of Fire. For if he had remained within the rock, even Dragonflame would not have daunted him. Yeah, it'd be another case of, yeah, what are you going to do to us? Breathe fire on the mountain? I mean, even, <laughs> it might do a little damage, but they weren't worried about it. So 200 feet high, that's huge. But before I read about, but after reading about that Song Dune cave, it's like, yeah, that's, it's not the biggest though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Red Kraken, as far as we know, is the closest to taking it by force. He nearly did it during the Dance of the Dragons. We've got an episode on him. If you're curious about that, it's patrons only, but... It's all very well described there. Nina wonders why even King Lauren decided to join King Mern on the Field of Fire during the conquest if he had such a strong defensive position. Did he not believe Aegon had dragons or did he not think that 
it would work. To, if he didn't appear, he would have to come to like show his face or. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think mostly there's a lot of this Westerosi attitude of you just, you can't sit and hide in your castle when there's someone's challenging you. That's it's like, you have to face them. That's just what Westerosi nobility, that's what it demands. Like, you don't have to. You can be like, you can hide behind your castle. It definitely happens. But you, we see this attitude recurringly where it's like, you're not, you're not really a king if you're not willing to face your enemies when they're saying, hey, I'm in your territory. I'm invading your territory. Come face me. I think it's like a, a Civil War, World War One type thing where like maybe there's some value to that mentality. That's the way it is. It's your your uh, honor's more important than the lives that will be lost. But it's different when new technology comes along. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. The trench warfare and the machine guns, it just wasn't, you can't do what you did before. When there's a dragon involved, like, okay, fine, we're sending a castle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <that's, laughs> this is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, a lot of these Westerosi are not good at, at innovating. <laughs> I suppose you could say. <laughs> so let's take a few questions and then we'll get right back to it. First of all, three ways to get our bonus episodes these days. You can sign up on Patreon at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. Get the Red Kraken, get Gagasso City of Blood Magic, get the Buildings of Brandon, and lots of other cool bonus episodes only available through there. You can also get them through a Spotify subscription. We have that available now. It just adds on to your monthly your fee there, nice and simple. Or you can send a donation through historyofwesteros.com, and we'll send you the links manually. So three ways to get them, all very simple. And a good way to support the show. First question is from Kartik Prabhu. He says, the national anthem of the Westerlands must be a rock song, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good one. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Rock, flag, and eagle. <laughs> <laughs> rock, flag, and lion. Yeah. Um, yeah rock like, what's that? The, the Simon and Garfunkel song, I have a rock. Uh, or I am a rock. No, I, I have a rock. a rock. I am a rock. Or yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they're not an island. I think if Westeros was merged with the real world, it would be Dwayne Johnson's seat. Definitely. <laughs> yes, yes. Matt Reese says, anyone else hope that Lan the Clever was actually a casterly bastard named Lana Hill who played one of the greatest Game of Thrones ever to take over the rock? Or is that just me? It is definitely not just you. We are big proponents of the of that idea or the Lan's sister idea, which is that Lan, Lannister, Lan's sister is a, is a possibility. And we were really hoping that Blood Moon would maybe get into that, but it was probably a vain hope for Blood Moon to get into that because the, apparently the people who made Blood Moon didn't know that much about the, the lore <laughs> and the backstory. So they probably just made a whole bunch of stuff up. But still, we did consider that for a while and it's still possible. You never know. Julie A. says, is there a theory on this statement from lost Valyrian scrolls? Valyrian sorcerers believed that their downfall would come from the rock's gold. Was this fulfilled by Tyrion and the Second Sons? And there's a series of other replies that okay. are relevant here. For example, we have TKOK Podcast Network, our very own Tommy, who said, there's also the theory that it refers to Jaime ending the Targaryen reign when he killed Ares, Nina, brings up it could also be a reference to an event in the past the gold that brought that bought uh bright roar paying off the faceless men who brought down the valyrian sorcerers because again the quote says the freehold sorcerers foretold that the gold of cash to the rock would destroy them do you have a thought on that aziz i i do tend to lean towards i i like the idea of it being when the targaryens were ended by jamie and the lannisters in that sense but I like them both. It's hard to pick yeah. because they both do fit pretty well. Like uh, the one thing Three is that right didn't really there, end really, the Valyrians. As, 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 uh, technically, I would say. Yeah, the thing about the problem with the Jamie theory is that it it's 
I like it, but but it's it didn't really end the Valyrians, did it? Like the Targaryen, yeah. this is just a tar- house Targaryen. Yeah, right? that's true too. And they might even get the throne back. It didn't actually end them. Like Danny's still out there. The dragons came back after that. Like mm-hmm. there's some issues with that. Like it might be it fits, but the go- which is the Bright Roar theory has issues too. But that one at least does address this part yeah, I where guess I, their what, money was was the money spent on the faceless men that actually caused the doom. Yeah, I guess the which, part that I like is the idea that the free of the freehold sorcerer is foretelling this thing that isn't actually relevant to them at all. That's relevant yeah. to many generations later. Is the take on I like on I that. like that too. Yeah, um, they were worried about something that they should have been worried about something else. They should have been worried about the doom, and they were worried about something that that happened to yeah to Daenerys' later, family. Like later, later, yeah, yeah. Tommy brings up the Hugh Hammer, the idea oh, yeah. that 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 prophecy, how they theorized, oh, that it had it had to do with this, but in fact, it, it was something many generations later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah, so there is, it's, and we know George has that habit of of throwing in these vague prophecies that are meant to be meant to be interpreted wrong to cause plot points or to or just conflict. So that that works really well. Yeah, I like that. So I, I like both the theories. I don't know that I can pick one over the other. And it's possible that they're both meant to be true. Yeah. That it's supposed to refer to both of them. Yeah, that's true. That the gold ruined them multiple times. TKOK Podcast says that Corlo's story sounds like Ned not wanting to kill Danny and Viserys. Yes, absolutely. And, and if we expand on that, yeah, because it's like they're dragons. It's like, no, Robert's like, no, they grow up to be Targaryens. Yeah. <laughs> they grow up to be this. And Ned's like, we don't kill children for the wrongs that they're they might do. We kill them when they are adults that actually commit crimes. Otherwise, like, what are you? We're killing children, then we're doing the same thing. This is why we got rid of the Targaryens. He's like, no, that's not why we got rid of the Targaryens. Okay, that's why you got rid of the Targaryens. <laughs> it's like I just hated them. <laughs> Robert's like, what do you mean by we? Yeah, we because by, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Bryson Chung says that Pato- the Potosi silver mine in Bolivia is a good real world comparison. This single mountain has been continuously mined for centuries. And is still active and is the source of 60% of the world's silver. Whoa, really? I hadn't heard that. That's wild. That's amazing. It makes sense if you think about all the money Spain was shipping on its treasure fleets out of the Caribbean, just this huge literal boatloads of gold and silver <laughs> going back to Spain. Well, I guess a lot of it was coming out of Bolivia. Guilty Undertaker says Martin Lannister is Kevin's other son, and he's still alive for now. Yeah, Martin is younger than than Lancel, though I believe. Yeah, yeah, he's younger. So, so and and is, to be clear, Tyrek, you know, is is Tyrek's son. Yeah, Tyrek. I, I just wanted to make that clear yeah. that we weren't saying that that was um, Kevin's. Just son. he's another Lannister that's out there. Yes, yeah, he's exactly, another yeah. another claimant. Here's a helpful language lesson from Lee Fessa on our Discord server. They say a castle is originally from Old English castel meaning C-A-S-T-E-L, meaning village. It later came to mean large building or series of connected buildings fortified for defense, fortress, or stronghold. Cool. The caster in real-world British place names such as Lancaster or Casterton is from Old English meaning Chester, meaning fort, which is Chester is that C-A-E word where the A-E is one letter, you know? That, uh, I forget what that's called, but anyway... The, the L-Y or L-E-Y at the end of a place name is usually from Olea, meaning woodland. I probably said that wrong, but it means woodland, clearing, or meadow. So rock usually means rock. So Castle Rock could mean something like fort on the rock at the clearing. Or maybe George just added the L-Y because it sounds place namey. So maybe just say fort on the rock or fort in the rock, which definitely is that. So that would be a Kind of an amazing coincidence if George didn't intend that, but it is, it's possible. But still, that's that's really neat. Thank you for that, Lifeessa. And uh, 
Appreciate all your comments, folks. Here's some more features of Castle Rock. The protected harbor that we mentioned earlier, it's pretty big. The rock even has a port inside it, complete with docks and wharves and shipyards, for the sea has carved great caves into its western face, natural gates deep and wide enough for longships and even cogs to enter and offload their cargo. I mean, that's just so perfect. I mean, geez, that's so good. Are the shipyards inside the rock. Shipyards, like, come on. We were talking about how big, like, the Boeing thing was. Like, they're making giant airplanes and stuff like that. I mean, these aren't quite that big, but you got big-ass ships they're making in there. Cogs? Cogs are huge. I mean, those are the same treasure ships that we are talking about the Spanish were hauling all that treasure on. <laughs> so none of the other great houses have anything really like this except King's Landing. River Run has, like, some river galleys. We saw them chase Jamie and Brienne, but that's, I mean, that's, that's small fries compared to this. Pike, of course, Iron. Well, you're like, oh, the Ironborn have ships. Yeah, of course they do, but Pike ships are actually on the other side of the island. Pike is separate from its port, so they're not super close by, even for the Ironborn, although a lot of the other castles would have something probably right there. But those are the lesser castles. Nothing the size of Castle Rock. Storm's End has some ships, but it doesn't really have a fleet. We don't hear about them being a sea power. And of course, it's a really hazardous place for ships, the storms, Stormlands. High Garden, probably similar to River Run. We don't really know, but they probably have some river vessels. They're on the Mander. But again, they're not really listed as a big sea power. Sunspear, similar, not much going on there. Winterfell and the Eerie, straight landlocked. No, <laughs> no ship business whatsoever for them. <laughs> and likewise, none of the others are so close to one of the five cities, excepting again, King's Landing, which is one of the main five cities with the Red Keep controlling it. Landisport, right there next to Castle Rock. Gulltown, not that close to the Eerie. White Harbor, not that close to Winterfell. I guess you're talking about Great House, as I would talk about the High Tower. Well, Old Town, yeah, Old Town like, is, it's, it's like isn't technically of, a Great House, but they would be a good you example. You know, right. like kind of counts because, like, technically, the High Tower is a little bit separate from Old Town, like the city itself. Yeah. That's probably our closest example next to the Red Keep and, and King's Landing. So that's yeah, those are probably the three biggest like power centers. But but yeah, they're reduced in power comparatively because they don't rule the Reach like like Castle Rock rules the West and like King's Landing rules the Crown Lands. But you're right, that is, they'd probably be a solid third place there <laughs> in, this, in this category. And that makes it important because of all the regions in all of Westeros, Castle Rock and its surrounding region is the most capable of establishing itself as separate and a challenging King's Landing. As Nina writes, especially considering it directly or indirectly controls a major city of its own, right? Those two factors are huge. So it has a huge population center, trade network, military strength, loyalty of its vassals, partly because of its great strength, long time in charge. And that's really important because we've got examples of the West's uh, pulling free or threatening to break free. And that's going to be a big deal in the Dance of the Dragons. And it might be a big deal in A Song of Ice and Fire. But also we're looking forward to seeing what's on the inside. I Because we said we'll, we'll get to see it, we probably will get a POV inside it. It could be Jamie, could be Cersei, could be Tyrion, could be all three of them, could be someone else, could be an epilogue, prologue chapter, don't know. And this is where we'll get expansion on things like this, where it's almost two leagues, which is roughly 6.5 miles from end to end at the base. And here's where we get to the description of the inside. George says there's things like steep turnpike stairs. That's where Tywin's father died. He died climbing the stairs. Heart, his heart gave out. So maybe he could have used an elevator, but I can also see why mm -hmm. they wouldn't want an elevator because maybe it's, they think it could be sabotaged or something like that. I'm not sure. I did want to say real quick, by the way, that just a important piece of the innovation of the elevator 
was being able to like uh, a safeguard to make it stop. Like if something mm. goes wrong, that it doesn't just crash to the bottom. Mm. It was like a relatively new innovation that helped with the proliferation of skyscrapers. <laughs> and anyway, they came up with a way for like, if it breaks, there's like this catching system for the pulleys that like makes it lock or whatever. But anyway, think how bad it is if something goes wrong and it breaks and you fall and you die. They don't care if like servants die like that, but they would not want a Lannister yeah. to die like that. They not the Lords, yeah. Them, not going to take that chance. I guess they do have the, 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 no, the lift good. on the wall. They've got some kind of system to take an elevator of sorts up the wall. No, I, I asked the question because Joanna Lannister, who we brought up earlier, has clearly put a lot of thought into Cash to the Rock was theorizing that there was a series of winches and pulleys, partially because we do have that technology that exists on the wall in the wall, like you brought up, Sean. Yeah. So it made sense to me as well that that would exist. So I, I, I was surprised that he said no. And I, I, I do, I, I think there might still be something in there. Maybe a few of them. Maybe it's just not an <laughs> extensive series. Like I think they have to be in the mines. Like yeah, yeah, in the mines, yeah. But that doesn't mean people are riding them, but they'd be using them to haul stuff up, which, yeah. which by the way, is another like logistical thing. It's like, they're probably not hauling the gold all the way to the top. Like, that's a huge amount of challenge. Like, why would they need to do that? On the other hand, they would want to make, keep it safeguarded, but they have only one entrance in and out. So it probably is safeguarded. But imagine, like, anytime a servant goes in and out of yeah. Castle Rock, they're probably, like, searched for gold. Like, <laughs> you're trying to smuggle gold out here. Like, that's how they would... Enforce like slaves at like diamond mines, like in the real world, in any sort of mines where you put slaves to work in a mine. And these guys are not technically slaves, but they basically are. And so, yeah, you would just search them. Sometimes you would force them to work naked so there's no way for them to like conceal yeah. diamonds. It's really awful. I wonder if Martin has just this idea in his mind that it's more of this intricate weaving network of tunnels. And so the up-downness required for winches or whatever, he just doesn't envision it that no, way. And maybe, so he said yeah. no. Maybe if he thought about it more, he might realize, yeah, there probably are some, but he might just have a different vision of it being more convoluted, haphazardly built pathways just following gold or whatever, mm -hmm. rather than like organized structure. Yeah, maybe some of it's like too it was too hard to retrofit some of these tunnels with pulleys when they were they were originally yeah. made some way thousands of years ago. And it's like, yeah, it's too late to change that now. It would cause structural integrity. I don't know. As above my pay grade here, talking about mining and <laughs> tunneling. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, the average inhabitant of Castle Rock is in pretty good shape, though. I, yeah. I actually put that in the notes, like a servant. Imagine 8,000 years of servants walking around. They must have, like, just great calves and, and butts. Just, you know, there, <laughs> just great, there really legged. is a... <laughs> uh, I think it's in South America. There's some... There's, like, a, a tribe of people that live, like, on the side of a steep mountain. Okay. And because just physically going around their daily lives is so physically challenging... They have a different metabolism. Oh. And it, when people from that village move away to like the big city, they suddenly become very obese. Oh, wow. Because they're not burning the same calories they used to going up and down mountainsides and everything. They're probably so used like to a, that. And they're like, a dynamic and yeah. human weight regulation is being studied. But hmm. anyway, point is, I, that might be the case in Castle Rock. I don't Rocks know. Yeah. They're like, they might be their own kind of development in there like the people that have been living in there for thousands of years they might like their eyesight might be different from living in caves oh long, yeah. you know like it's probably not super well lit in a lot of these places should i play this now yes this is mysticon 2016 oh they would be you know uh, so yes hi i'm ashea my question is considering that casterly rock is taller than every skyscraper built in the 20th century does it happen to have like a series of cages and winches or little elevators or any way to transport things easily? 
Well, Kesley Rock is loosely based on the Rock of Gibraltar. Have you ever visited the Rock of Gibraltar? Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Of course, Kesley Rock is bigger. In fantasy, you always turn everything up to 11. Uh, <laughs> but it's not usually bigger. So go, go see the Rock of Gibraltar and, and, and all that. It's, it's pretty amazing. There are caves down there. There are, are fortifications. I mean, there, there, were, there were gold mines and in, in the Rock of Gibraltar. They tapped out eventually, but it's honeycombed with tunnels, and, and uh, there are places where they stationed cannons to repel it, and there, there's a whole theater there, and no winches or elevators, but the slanting tunnels and, and steps carved into the rocks itself and all sorts of other kinds of cool things. Thank you. You wonder if there's like carts, maybe mining carts with tracks. I don't know what how what level tech that would be. That might be too advanced, but maybe not. This seems mm-hmm. somewhat basic. But I don't know. Yeah, just it's just, just like ancient mining. I don't know how a lot of it works, other than it's it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe we'll shed some more light on that later. And again, we'll we'll when we see it, George is going to have to give some more description and, and nail some of these things down. So when you think about Tyrion being given charge of the drains and cisterns of this place. It's a much bigger task than you may have first imagined because the, the drainage in a, in a system like this, in an environment like this, would be massively important. Humidity in caves is a big deal. When we talk about the siege tunnels and Gibraltar and all that military equipment, that's a big recurring chore for them was to keep things dry, especially like ammunition, things like that, which is really vital to not get wet. Supplies, your food, you can't have it like rotting. So that's a real, real big problem, big issue, logistical issue is dealing with the moisture and like that could ruin things. Like all these fancy Lannister wealth rusting, you gotta like have your servants cleaning that constantly, (laughs) doing all this work. Gibraltar right there sticking out in the ocean, that would be an issue. Yes. So Rock, yes. it literally has water flowing into its base. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that's very true. And then some of that would be salt water, which is even more corrosive, I guess, in some places. So you got a different, uh, different management. You got both the fresh water and the salt water to manage. So there's probably, yeah, it's probably the that job is probably huge. The person in charge of that, it's that's no small thing. So it's funny to think that Tyrion was just given charge of something so important just because he's a Lannister and because Tywin wanted him out of the way. He's like, really? You want to give the 16-year-old that job? But Tyrion did a good job of it. So it was like, all right, there we go. All right. (laughs) Tyrion's capable. Here's another actual memory of Tyrion. We're going to start getting into some POV memories of the place. They're not super specific, but it does give us some tantalizing glimpses and helps us expand our imagination on what we're looking at here. Under roofs of bent wood and stiffened leather, The wagon beds were heaped high with old weaponry and armor. Tyrion took one look inside, remembering the gleaming racks of swords and spears and halberds in the armory of the Lannisters below Casterly Rock. Now, we would have assumed there would have been a huge armory, a bunch of weapons and armor and stuff in there. But still, it gets us thinking. Something that Joanna and Stephen Atwell talked about on their Tumblr posts on this topic is how to prevent takeover from the inside. Like, it's so defensible from the outside Takeover from the inside would be of great concern. At some point, the Lannisters and or Castleys realized, especially since that's what happened. Especially that's how apparently Castle Ruach was lost from the Castleys was land took it over from the inside. Obviously, the stories differ on how he did it, but they all have that in common. He got it from within. It wasn't an assault from outside. It wasn't troops coming in and saying, I conquered this. No, it was from within. So... You got to have that protection against someone else doing that. And that could be anything from having the, your most trusted retainers in charge of where the weapons are to having things like 
Steven brings up the the movie Snowpiercer, which I thought was a really genius parallel here, where the back of the train, if you're not familiar with the movie Snowpiercer, it's now a show as well. I don't know anything about the show, but the movie is, there's a train going around the world endlessly. It's it's a nuclear winter, holocaust, uh, nuclear holocaust, something like that. Post-apocalyptic, yeah. So there's a train permanently going around the world. And every, like, pretty much all of the rest of humanity lives on it. And the front is, like, the boss. And at the end is, like, the poorest people. And in order for the, for any sort of revolution to happen, the people at the end of the train would have to fight their way through all the other train cars to get to the boss. And it's a similar situation here where, let's say there's a revolution in the mines. Well, how are they going to fight their way up to the Lannister apartments at the top? There would be levels of, they would probably place things so they're like, oh, to get to the Lannister apartments, you have to go through the household nights or through the barracks or something like that where it would be pretty much impossible or where they could maybe seal you off and be like, oh, we just locked the tunnels down and now these insurrection is just completely cut off. So I would think that the Lannisters, given they're so practiced at ruling and controlling and dominating and they have so much money and they've had it for so long, they would be very savvy and aware of a lot of these things unless it's started, unless they've started to get slack on it. Now, under Tywin, I don't think they'd be slack. Maybe under Titus, they were. Maybe that's one of the things he was so worried about. And it almost happened. Like Ellen Rain, they did almost take it over from within through marriage and politics and popularity and other things like that. So that's the real threat to their rule, I think. And so that's something that I would think they'd be very worried about. Threats from the inside. That's the real danger. What do you think, Sean? Oh, I just wanted to say that I thought it was good that you brought that up uh, out of nowhere because I had just grabbed a super chat from TKOK Podcast Network. Aziz needs to talk about the snow piercer theory. Good so theory. you anticipated <laughs> what you were about to talk about. It's the rock piercer theory in this case. Yes. <laughs> snow is John's you know, theory, yeah. The way intelligence, at least the U.S. intelligence system CIA, that, that what I mean by intelligence, right? You, you hear about something's like top secret information, but there's more to it. I think there's confidential, secret, top secret. Like but within that, that even, it's still yeah. compartmentalized. It, it's There's not really going above that. What matters is that even within that, like if you have a top secret security clearance, that doesn't mean you can see anything that's top secret. It's still a need to know basis. Mm. You still have to have some reason to know this particular top secret information. And if you don't, you can't, even if you have a top secret security clearance. Like that and Gibraltar so, hidden tunnel, like the the the, the, the stay behind there, thing. Like only that, eight yeah. people knew. There were surely more people that had top secret clearance than eight people, but you're right. They were exactly. they didn't need to know. Exactly. And so I wonder if that's part of how Castle Rock is designed, where this area here is where food is cultivated, this is where food is prepared, this is where weapons are stored, but there's you can't get from one spot to the other. Yeah. At least not going through this guard or going through this complicated series of tunnels that someone couldn't do secretly or suddenly, you know? That's a great take, yeah. And, I, and one thing I thought about it in particular was like, let's say the servant, how do, they, how do you keep control of the servants? Like keep them from like poisoning the Lannisters or whatever. Well, one thing you keep it so you might restrict their access to such things given that would all come from the outside world. But on the other hand, you you have their family in there too. Like, well, if if, if someone yeah. turns up dead and it poison is suspected, well, they may escape, but their whole family is like, remember, no one, this is an, another reason why I think in and out is probably very tightly controlled. You know, you probably going, need like a pass to go in and especially both ways, you know. Going into Castle Rock is like going out on a boat with Dennis. <laughs> because of the implication. Because of the implication, <laughs> that's right. So yeah, like don't you mess with the Lannisters. You end up in one of those oubliettes or you end up being sent to the mine. This is one thing Tyrion thinks about. He's like, Bronn makes a comment one day. He's like, 
if you had made that comment to my father, he'd have sent you to the mines. And it's like, sent you to the mines, eh? What is this? Is this slave labor? I mean, that's what it sounds like. It's like, is, is he exaggerating? Yeah. Probably not. That's probably really what it is. And it's like, eh. Another example of the semantics of what's a servant, what's a slave. And it's like, yeah, these, if you're locked inside Castle Rock, probably can't leave and forced to work in a mine, you're, I mean, who's going to, like, that's a slave. I mean, come on, right? I wonder if people <laughs> maybe even get brought into that situation by being offered pay that they're given. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much gold you have when you're trapped inside this castle, this rock, this mountain. You can't leave. Yeah, what's the, your money on anyway? What's the economy you know? in there like? Yeah, like is it is there like a big yeah. markup on things or is it <laughs> gold really cheap? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> something might be cheaper. I don't know. Yeah. Now here's a quote from Cersei. Though Cersei often slept alone, she had never liked it. Her oldest memories were of sharing a bed with Jamie when they had still been so young that no one could tell the two of them apart. Later, after they were separated, she'd had a string of bedmaids and companions, most of them girls of an age with her, the daughters of her father's household knights and bannermen. None had pleased her, and few lasted very long. Little sneaks, the lot of them, <laughs> vapid, weepy creatures, always telling tales and trying to worm their way between me and Jamie. Still, there had been nights deep within the black bowels of the rock, when she had welcomed their warmth beside her, an empty bed was a cold bed. Is the dark, deep, dark tunnels of Castle Rock similar to the deep, dark tunnels of Cersei's mind? Because, <laughs> yep. Now, a recurring phrase is found here, bowels of the rock. There, That comes up a lot, that as a descriptor. And I wonder if that's an intentional, because it's obviously bowels is not the most positive connotation. I mean, we all need bowels. They're very useful. But usually you're referring to waste material and the stuff that sits there. It's not something you would use to describe something positively. So it sounds pretty like intimidating or uh, an aspect of a very corrupt place in the first place. There's also lots of mentions of it being cold. That makes sense, right? We talked about heat being funneled here, here and there, but that probably couldn't heat the whole entire thing. We're talking miles and miles of tunnels and all that. Yeah, and it, it would have variants from within certain places. It might be cold in some places and, and warm in other places. But it sounds like where Cersei lived, there was a lot of cold and not as much light, which even the Lannisters were living in areas where aren't, aren't super well lit or super warm. So that's, that's interesting. That does maybe argue that it's even for them with all their wealth, it's difficult properly heating this place. <laughs> Nina says, there's also a moment I think goes somewhat unappreciated in terms of the size of the rock, taking us back to Jamie and Cersei's incest, like we mentioned at the start. Quote. Long before his sister's flowering or the advent of his own manhood, they had seen mares and stallions in the fields and dogs and bitches in the kennels and played at doing the same. Once their mother's maid had caught them at it. He did not recall just what they had been doing, but whatever it was had horrified Lady Joanna. She'd sent the maid away, moved Jamie's bedchamber to the other side of Castle Rock, set a guard outside Cersei's, and told them that they must never do it again, or she would have no choice but to tell their lord father. Okay, two things. One, as an aside, she'd sent the maid away. That's like when your dog dies and your parents tell you it went to go live on a farm. I bet she had this person killed. This is protected. You know, I didn't think of that, but I bet you're right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it really did, depends yeah. on what kind of person Joanna was, which we don't know. 
But, but I, if she's smart. She killed that maid. Unfortunately, yeah. like yeah. she's smart and cruel. To be clear, that isn't me saying it was good. But like that, that was the decision to make to save her family. Big secret. And if Tywin had found out, then that then it was like almost more certain, right? <laughs> but so there's a chance that that I'm wrong. But I would guess that that person was put to death very quietly, sent to work in the mines or something, or just just completely killed off. I don't know. Either way, though. So when we think about that, we're like, oh, so she was moved to the other side of the rock. Like, oh, so like. A little ways away. No, as it turns out, that's like miles. That's miles away. <laughs> that's like being moved to the other side of the city. Yes, yes. You so know? we like, like if this was a normal, yeah. So that maybe didn't sink in. It certainly didn't sink in for me when I read that quote the first ten times. I didn't really think about how big it was. It didn't really occur to me. It's like, wow, yeah, they really, they probably didn't see each other much. And that really, that really sticks in. Like later, you think about how intent they were on being able to be together. Like Cersei did all this maneuvering. Like tell him you want to be in the King's Guard and do all this other stuff. When they were separated at a young age like that, it was probably pretty traumatic. And they were like, like seven or eight years old. Like, yeah, that's probably no wonder. Besides just really liking each other and being attracted to each other, they just also just wanted to be around each other. They're twins, right? They This is very formative, right, it's for them. So I think that's a pretty big deal. So that's a great take by Nina. Good said for sure. And But Jamie also has fond memories of Casterly Rock. He has a lot of good memories of it. But at the same time, he has the self-awareness that maybe Cersei lacks. Maybe not. She just hasn't had this thought. But he thinks to himself that only a Lannister could love the Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps similar to the Starks of Winterfell, especially as seen through the eyes of Catelyn. Like, she's freaked out by the place even after living there all the time. She doesn't feel welcome there. Like, maybe only a, a Lannister likes it because, yeah, it's, it's awful, but when you're in charge of it, it's like, it's not so bad then. <laughs> but it's dark and cold and echoey and not very homely and not very, yeah, like, that doesn't sound great. I mean, but of course, having all that money sounds nice, but <laughs> not if it's going to corrupt your family for generations. Yeah, only a Lannister is greedy enough to value the money over the comforts of life, the beauty of the world, whatever. So yeah. that's a great point. That's a great, really good way to put it. That was very eloquent, Sean. So here's some things we do know that exist. Like I said, we there's a lot of it that's not detailed yet. George is almost certainly holding off because he hasn't put it on screen yet and was planning to. So it's like, well, why describe too much of it before we actually go there? Here's some things we do know that exist. The menagerie, right? There's a lot there's lion cages, there's kennels, maybe other stuff. Maybe it's like the Sea Lord of Bravos where they just like have other animals down there because they're rich as hell, and why not? Some of some Lannisters are bound to be sea into animals. animals. They might have. What's that? If they have any sea animals, Ooh, they have yeah, like a little yeah. aquarium too. Yeah, maybe a deep one <laughs> on display down there. <laughs> 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 we don't know what this is, but we captured it, and it's creepy as hell. <laughs> There's this thing called the Hall of Heroes. Nina says, compare it a little bit to the Crypts of Winterfell. Both of them are resting places of the dead of their respective houses, but where the Starks have done stone statues to represent their past kings and lords with swords in hand, the Lannisters have suits of, quote, costly armor. Not every Stark of the past was good, and not even, not every Lannister would be evil, but the contrast is different. Like, what they're being remembered for. One is like, look how grand and wealthy and and perfect these Lannisters were, where the Starks are more like, they stood to defend the North, and it's just a different messaging. And there's also this golden gallery, which is I'm not quite clear on what the difference between the Hall of Heroes and the Golden Gallery is. They sound somewhat similar, but it's Nina thinks this is probably, of all the features of the rock, this might be the one that is most responsible for the rumors about, like, golden walls and golden toilets and all this other stuff, and just gold in the fields. 
For example, let's look at this quote here that refers to both of these two locations, and it just sounds like, gosh, it's so wealthy. The lords of Casterly Rock have gathered many treasures over the centuries, and the sites of the rock, especially the Golden Gallery, with its gilded ornaments and ornaments and walls, and the Hall of Heroes, where the costly armor worn by a hundred Lannister knights, lords, and kings stand eternal guard, are justly famed throughout the Seven Kingdoms, even in lands beyond the Narrow Sea. So 8,000 years of collected ar- armor, golden armor, <laughs> and just, whoa! And again, the upkeep on that, like these things would be rotting and rusting, or I don't know how well, I don't know if gold rusts, I don't know how that works. But anyway, there would be upkeep required, based on all the humidity and all that. Just the upkeep. You imagine this would be something to get shown to any visitor. They probably yeah. walk through this before they go to their bedchamber or the dining oh, yeah. hall or whatever else. And so that's what they leave telling stories about. Good point. Yeah. And, and Tywin's big on showing the prestige of his house. So yeah, you want to show off this. But look, this is this is just our collect. This is just like our fancy room. Like, And, and more and more gold is being pulled out of the ground as we speak <laughs> that we're making more <laughs> of these. And we've been doing this for so long. Yeah, that would just blow you away. The prestige and wealth is like unbelievable. Here's another quote. A Dance with Dragons, Cersei 2. Cersei paced her cell, restless as the caged lions that lived in the bowels of Casterly Rock when she was a girl, a legacy of her grandfather's time. She and Jamie used to dare each other to climb into their cage, and once she worked up enough courage to slip her hand between two bars and touch one of the great tawny beasts. Cersei's not uh, unbrave, that's for sure. You can't say that about her. She could, bowels again. She could have been the handless one. Yeah, she could have easily been the handless <laughs> one. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would have been more ironic. You lost it to an actual lion. But yeah, again, the word bowels is used here. And remember, this is her, this is Titos. Titos was the one almost killed by a lion and was saved by the man who became the founder of House Clegane. He lost three dogs and his leg. And of course, the three dogs were on the sigil. Not the leg, apparently. The leg was left off the sigil, but... <laughs> <laughs> that would have been funny. Like a, three dogs and a leg. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> which leg is it? It's clearly the left leg. Yeah. Because um, it was left on the ground. Yeah. George is, uh, Nita says, George is almost certainly drawing on the history of the lions kept in the Tower of London, among other medieval menageries, from at least the reign of King John in the early 13th century with records, payments. They have records payments. This is an interesting source of, of history is they have payments made to lion keepers which proves there were lions. Like, that proves that there were lions, right? They have they may not have the evidence of the actual lions, but there's receipts to paying the zookeepers. So for specific lion keepers, that, it's hard to interpret that elsewise. So that was in 19, or 1210 to 12, 1212, and all the way up until 1835 when the animals were moved to the London Zoo, which is still a thing. I don't suppose it's the same lions that are a couple hundred years old, but lions are pretty amazing. <laughs> no, but there's the, she continues here, the now destroyed lion tower within the Tower of London complex housed lions, among other animals. Interestingly, these lions were from a population of the northern lion subspecies known as the Barbary lions, like those Barbary apes brought to Gibraltar. These were brought to England. They were not native there. I mean, Barbary refers to the Barbary coast which of course is nowhere near England. Well, not not too near England anyway. And just as the wild lions of Westeros are mostly extinct, we have this same similar situation where there's not there's no longer lions in the wild of England. Uh, and the last monarch to keep a lion at the Tower of London was George IV, who, like Titus the uh, Lannister, died after a very unhealthy, very uh, profligate life. He had the the daily regimen to keep him from dying was just so gross. Like they had to drain fluid from his legs and do all this stuff every day. Yeah, bad. 
here's another quote. A Storm of Swords, Jamie Four thinking again about Casterly Rock. The steps ended abruptly on echoing darkness. Jamie had the sense of vast space before him. He jerked to a halt, teetering on the edge of nothingness. A spear point jabbed at the small of his back, shoving him into the abyss. He shouted, but the fall was short. He landed on his hands and knees upon soft sand and shallow water. There were watery caves deep below Castley Rock, but this one was strange to him. What place is this? Your place. Your place. The voice Your place. echoed. <laughs> <laughs> Your place, 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 place. It was a hundred voices, a thousand the voices of all the Lannisters since Land the Clever, who lived at the dawn of days. But most of all, it was his father's voice. And beside Lord Tywin stood his sister, pale and beautiful, a torch burning in her hand. Joffrey was there as well, the son they'd made together. And behind them, a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. No wonder Cersei's pale when she didn't get any sun inside Cashley Rock. Yeah, you wouldn't get much of suntan <laughs> down there, right? It's another, it's just maybe another... Vague reference to the the pale the woman with the pale, pale fire, fire in her hands, yeah, yeah that that yeah. might be Cersei in Euron's vision or Aaron's vision invoked mm-hmm. by Euron. Maybe Viserion is the better guess there, but Cersei is definitely uh, on the list. So since this is a dream, we can't fully trust it. But that thing where he says there were watery caverns deep below Castle Rock is that's got to be right. We, that's pretty well established already. So this, but this is still really interesting here and in thinking about Jamie going down there and what it means to him. So we have all the Lannisters have thought about these caverns at different times, the ones that have POVs anyway. And this brings us over to the conversation or the topic of staff, servants who have worked there. It's probably massive generations that have lived there forever. And like I said, they'd be really good at walking. (laughs) Some of this we talked about already, but unsurprisingly and unfortunately, there have been... Almost certainly lots of unrecorded abuse against these servants by the aristocrats. That would be somewhat standard feature, but maybe worse in this closed environment. For example, Jason Lannister, Titus's younger brother, which is uh, Joanna's father, fathered Lenora Hill on a serving girl at Castle Rock, according to the unabridged Westlands chapter. This was actually removed later, but maybe, maybe George didn't think it was important, but we still take it as canon for now. Likewise, Robert Baratheon had twins on a Castle Rock servant with Cersei having them killed and the mother sold into slavery. And the fact that she had twins might suggest the servant herself was a Lannister descendant because the Lannisters run to twins so often. That bloodline, it's, it's a little suspicious. But I mean, Cersei selling someone into slavery is like, you're not supposed to be able to do that. <laughs> you're not supposed to have slavery, selling people into slavery in, in the West. But it's an example of the, they weren't sent to the mines. So they just wanted to get rid of them entirely without killing them, but killing the mother. Or killing killing the chi- the children and having the mother sold into slavery. So she broke the law just to get rid of this woman. But she also it also goes to show how they're above the law. Like she, there was no everybody knows this happened and no one was going to do anything to her for it. And they might be like Cersei, no slavery is allowed. Don't do that. Like not even a slap on the wrist, just a light admonishment. Like yeah, that's not going to stop her. <laughs> I mean, very little stops her in the first place. So. Moving onward, Tyrion 11, A Dance with Dragons, thinking about this very issue about servitude and slave owning and, mm, yeah. The most insidious thing about bondage was how easy it was to grow accustomed to it. The life of most slaves was not all that different from the life of a serving man at Casterly Rock, it seemed to him. True, some slave owners and their overseers were brutal and cruel, but the same was true of some Westerosi lords and their stewards and bailiffs. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it is just a matter of, like, luck. Like, who's in charge? 
If you're, you have no control of the situation, you have a boss or a king or a lord, and you have no control over it, if you're lucky, then they're a good person. If you're not, then they're Tywin or something. Yeah. So Nina has a really good theory here. I like that given how it's such a closed environment and given how the Lannisters are so ascendant and dominant, you wonder if they have carvings or imagery of like bleeding into religion, like showing the father as looking like a Lannister. Maybe they give them the, the images of the father of the seven having green eyes and blonde hair. Like how a lot of Western cultures, they make Jesus look like a white guy. Like that Jesus probably wasn't white, y'all. So it, it's a similar kind of thing where they just change it a little. Maybe it's, it's, it's sort of like syncretism, except that they're making up a religion, but merging it with the authority. They're merging the beliefs with authority to try to expand their authority. This isn't something we have proof of, but it just makes a lot of sense. They would... They worship the seven, they follow the seven, and they would want to maintain their hold over power. And this is something we've seen the world over. Rulers connecting themselves to the powers above, the gods, whether it's Starks having a connection to the old gods or real world priests referring to their connection or whether ancient Greek dynasties saying they descend from Zeus. It's this is very similar energy. And so I like this theory a lot. It is just a theory, but it's a good one. And I imagine if George had an idea like this, he would include it. We'll have to wait and see, but it tickles the mind. I like that a lot. There's a few examples of people who've been prisoner there. Let's talk about them. Aaron Dampier, A Feast for Crows, the prophet recalling his own shipwreck against Stannis. Quote, Some fishermen took him captive and marched him down to Lannisport in chains, and he spent the rest of the war in the bowels of Casterly Rock proving that krakens can piss farther and longer than lions, boars, or chickens. Bowels again, y'all, <laughs> right? It just keeps on coming <laughs> back. The bowels of Cassie Rock, which, of course, shit gold, as we know. <laughs> By the way, I wanted to say, uh, it, since it keeps coming up, the bowels often, it, you mentioned things it evokes, represents, but also dark and hidden. It's often used in that context. Mm, un, yeah, undiagnosed or unseen or, yeah, just yeah. waiting to be a problem later. So those those... Lions obviously means Lannisters, boars would mean Craycalls, and chickens would mean swift. How swift as in Harry Swift, the goofily bad master of coin <laughs> on Cersei's council. King Gerald the Great, not to be confused with King Gerald or Lord Gerald the Golden, put a hundred ironborn captives in his dungeon and he hanged one of them each time they raided. He was like, every time you raid, I'm going to hang another one of these captives. Unsurprisingly, that didn't really stop them or even slow them yeah. down. I didn't do I didn't do anything. It just like there was like, all right, go ahead. I'm like, we don't care. <laughs> just if that's gonna make you feel better. <laughs> and here's another quote, a nice long one describing a familiar character who last we saw was headed towards Castley Rock to, to take captivity there. But will that actually happen? We'll see. But here's the lead up. For a man who is going to spend the rest of his life as a prisoner Edmure was entirely too pleased with himself. We have oubliettes beneath the Casterly Rock that fit a man as tight as a suit of armor. You can't turn in them or sit or reach down to your feet when the rats start gnawing at your toes. Would you care to reconsider that answer? Lord Edmure's smile went away. You gave me your word that I would be treated honorably, as befits my rank. So you shall, said Jamie. Nobler knights than you have died whimpering in those oubliettes, and many a high lord, too. Even a king or two, if I recall my history. Your wife can have the one beside you if you like. I would not want to part you. 
This, of course, is right after Ed Muir is, is he's grinning because the blackfish got away. He's like, yeah, you didn't tell anything about him. And yeah, well, yeah. So he's upset. Now, this is, again, Jamie with his threats that he might not be actually prepared to pull off, <laughs> but that he did bluff his way in the other one. And he was like, don't do a threat. You're not capable of following through. And then he maybe did that, <laughs> but it worked for him. So, yeah, so like it says there, Rosalind is supposed to join him after her child is born. Another person taken captive was Roderick Greyjoy, son of the Red Kraken. And here's what happened to him. Though Toron Greyjoy remained upon the Seastone chair when his defenders beat off the Lannister assault upon the walls of Pike, his half-brother Roderick was taken and brought back to Castle Rock, where Lady Joanna had him gilded and made him her son's fool. Ouch. This is not Lady Joanna Lannister. This is Lady Johanna Westerling, who married the Lord of Castle Rock, who married... Lord Jason Lannister, twin of Lord Tyland, which is the two Lannisters at the start of the Dance of the Dragons. Lady Johanna will be the one leading the West against the Red Kraken after her husband dies in the Riverlands, leading armies there, which the Red Kraken was like, hey, you led your armies to the Riverlands, did you? Hmm, that opens up my, opens up my ability to attack you. And it had been 100 years since the Ironborn had attacked the West because of Aegon's conquest had settled all that down. So they weren't very well prepared for it, which is part of why they almost got inside Castle Rock. So we've covered a lot of that in part one of the Red Kraken episode. Part two that we're doing with Red Radio Westeros, which should be out within the next few months, is going to continue that story and talk about this Lady Johanna, the one who gelded Roderick Greyjoy and made him her son's fool. So yeah, she was quite a, quite a figure, a, a match for the Red Kraken to be sure. After prisoners, we have visitors, people who came there uh, of their own free will, starting with Oberyn Martell. Tyrion Five, A Storm of Swords. Did you find Casterly Rock to your liking, my lord? Scarcely. Your father ignored us the whole time we were there. After commanding Sir Kevin to see to our entertainment, the cell they gave me had a feather bed to sleep in and mirrors carpets on the floor. But it was dark and windowless, much like a dungeon when you come down to it, as I told Elia at the time. Nina says, I think the statement proves true. Tyrion's comment to Sansa in A Storm of Swords that, quote, only a Lannister can love the rock. The very aspects that make Castle Rock so imposing a defensive structure, its colossal size and massive natural walls, meaning security, which would make the lords of it feel safe, and its legacy as a homegrown from internal minds also make it not particularly cozy, especially to outsiders. For those who grew up there, like Tyrion, this is home, but to an outsider, this is claustrophobic, cold, gloomy, far more imposing than welcoming. Yeah, I mean... Like, you could easily read that as Oberyn just being a little snobby, but no, it doesn't sound that good. It sounds sounds like not that pleasant. Mirror's carpets on the floor is a sign of real wealth. Like, back in this era and on Earth, you wouldn't have carpet. This would be tapestries, because people would, like, people's feet would be a lot dirtier. Yeah. <laughs> Use rushes, <laughs> which are just, like, hey, basically, you know, just, and then you would just throw them out. You know, I just grabbed a quote for our Discord that mentioned Mirish carpet as well. Oh, yeah. Mir- <laughs> yeah. It's only very rich people would have that, which the Lannisters clearly are, so that's no no explanation needed there. I was going to say, like earlier, we were talking about the, the legends of the gold of the rock around the world and how they have these like great halls displaying all the wealth that probably you have to walk through those to get to conference room with Tywin or to the barracks of the dining hall or the bedroom you're staying at, like mm, Oberon would have. Yeah. And most people might not get that deep in. They might not be staying overnight like he did and would still be more overwhelmed with the gold or when they tell the story to someone else, that's the part that gets remembered. You know, most people wouldn't bother to complain about 
the room was cold, they would be like, there was so much gold. But Oberon maybe is more concerned with the comforts of life. Yeah. Well, the time was trying to show off and might be arrogant enough to think he can make that complaint and not worry about someone getting mad at him for it. A unique perspective that we would get from him there as a visitor than the average person. True, yeah. And it's really, that's why you're right. That makes it really valuable because most people who are like, there aren't going to be a lot of visitors who get to see, like go to the nice places in the rock. It would have to be someone fancy like... Another high, another high lord. Not a, not a ton of visitors would have better accommodations, but Oberyn did. Yeah, like Sunspear is beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's it's lovely. And remember that scene happens. That's when they were entertaining the idea of marrying. Like that's when Lady Joanna was going to try to marry Elia to Jamie and maybe Oberyn to Cersei. Uh, one or both of those were were on the table, but Joanna died, and Tywin was like, nope. I want Cersei to marry Rhaegar, <laughs> which Joanna was like, don't do that. But when she was out dead, then obviously Tywin got his way. We also have Rhaenyra Targaryen, as in the big character coming up on House of the Dragon. That Rhaenyra, there really isn't another Rhaenyra, but just in case you thought there was, hmm. here we go. little quote. In the West, Ser Jason Lannister and his twin, Ser Tyland, vied for Rhaenyra during a feast at Castor the Rock. So here's an example of the Lannisters doing their part as one of the High Lords of the Realm, throwing a big party for the, the Realm's Delight, which was her nickname in that era. Um, trying Vying to delight her. for her hand. Yeah, yeah. trying to just delight her, but... <laughs> yep, trying to, trying to make her happy. And this is also Nina Poitra, Robert and Cersei, probably with some of the Royal Court, visited Castor the Rock in 295, so three years before the book started, for attorney, hosted by Tywin. And that's when Robert had those twins on The Serving Girl. Nina also points out, not a visitor exactly, but worth noting that following their marriage, Jenna Lannister and Emmon Frey didn't live at the twins, but at Castle Rock. And that's where their youngest son, nicknamed Red Walder, is currently living as a page or squire. So there is, uh, the Freys are everywhere, including one of them at Castle Rock. Keep in mind of that. Also in line with that, Ellen Rain. When she was Lady of the Rock, she also showed the power of Castle Rock in the kind of the way Tywin did with the royal wedding, the purple wedding. Like we have to, we have to be grand and show how wealthy we are to like demonstrate our power. Similar thing here. These are smaller scale versions of that. They do this every once in a while to show off how wealthy we are. We can afford to throw this massive power. I mean, this massive party, and it doesn't. We keep going and we don't slow down after that. It shows how rich we are. And so Ellen Rain's like, yeah, I'm going to show off the wealth of the Lannisters that I want to be one of, but I'm not really anymore because the guy I married died, but I stuck around. And yeah, we covered all that in the Reigns of Castamere episode pretty thoroughly, if I do say so myself, I hope anyway. Let's talk about how The Rock is seen elsewhere. The pride, prestige, the rumor mill gets out of control, doesn't it? And that is something that someone like Tywin is not eager to correct. It's like, yeah, if they want to think we're even more powerful than we are, even bigger than we are, let's let them think that. So here's a, uh, here's a quote. The great wealth of the Westerlands, of course, stems primarily from their gold and silver mines. The veins of war run wide and deep, and there are mines even now that have been delved for a thousand years and more and are yet to be emptied. Lomas Longstrider reports that even in Far Shy by the Shadow, there were merchants who asked him if it was true that the Lion Lord lived in a palace of solid gold and that crofters collected a wealth of gold simply by plowing their fields. <laughs> the gold of the West has traveled far, and the maesters know that there are no mines in all the world as rich as those of Casterly Rock. Yeah, and when you think about that, the gold of the West has traveled far. A lot of them would be coins that have like the Lannister lion on it, maybe even have like a 
picture of Castle Rock or like an image of Castle Rock on one side and the Lannister sigil on the other or something like that. So yeah. And over time, this would be so ubiquitous. We're like, yeah, everyone's seen coins from Castle Rock. They're just like all over the world. Kem, that soldier in the in the Second Sons that Tyrion has a conversation with, he asks Tyrion, he's like, is it true that the toilets are made of gold there, the chamber pots? And he's from King's Landing. He's not even from like way in Essos. He's living in Essos when this question happens, but he's from King's Landing. He's seen Tywin before. He's like, yeah, I saw him once. Even he, a resident of Westeros, born in Westeros, still that rumor hits him. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Yi-T. There was Mengo Quen, the glittering god. Third of the Jade Green Emperors is said to have golden chamber pots as well. We speculated that maybe this was an exaggeration. And on the other side, we have this, which is an exaggeration. So maybe maybe Mengo Quen really does have golden chamber pots, but this one isn't true. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the same. Like we're supposed to take that rumor with the same grain of salt instead of grain of gold. Yeah. Maybe they have one golden chamber pot <laughs> in that in that Hall of Heroes or whatever that people get to use one time just to just go out and spread the rumor. <laughs> and I would have said a, a grain of rock salt. A grain of rock salt, yes. <laughs> That's good. Hat tip again to Joanna Lannister. She points out the, la- the biggest producer of gold in the world is the Grasberg Mine. It produces 2 million ounces of gold per year which gives us maybe a working model for how much comes out of the rock, which is like, whoa, 2 million ounces a year? That is so much money. An ounce of gold is... a huge amount. I think... It's like $700 or something. Is it that? I I thought it was even more than that. But anyway, it's worth a huge amount. Yeah, it's just like... Yeah, that's so Like, even if it's $500, that's billions of dollars, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or a billion. If it's exactly 500, I think that would be exactly $1 billion worth of (laughs) gold in a year. Woo! Dang, this is particularly noteworthy too because it's a symbol, right? People think about the golden toilets and the insane wealth. And when Tyrion's like, "Hey, I'll promise y'all some of the gold of Casterly Rock if we can, if you can put me back in charge of it," and they're like, "You mean the place with golden toilets? Yeah, let's do that." So the rumor really works in his favor for that. They're like, "Wow, it's pre-sold to them." We're like, "Yeah, we want to be on the side of the guy that has access to that. (laughs) That's a good ally." And even though, and for them, it's a great deal because if he fails to deliver, well, what have they done for him? All they're doing is like letting him join and like not letting the slavers take him back, which to them is pretty minimal risk. So yeah, they're like, it's a pretty win. It's, it's a win-win. And Ben, Brown Ben wants 100,000 gold, which sounds like a massive amount. Oh, it is a massive amount. But Tyrion's like, oh, that's so much money. But he's like, I got afford- <laughs> that's, like a, that's like a couple of weeks of mining or a month or two of mining. Like, yeah, it's crazy how little that would actually be. If he really did rule Castle Rock, he'd be like, yeah, just write him a check. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just get that out of my head. Like, just get rid of this. Get this off the ledger. I don't need to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> it would be so fast. All right. So our last section here is the on-page slash screen outlook. What, what can we expect going forward? We would have, like I said earlier, as we alluded to, we probably would have seen Castle Rock on Blood Moon had that happened. But again, we're a good chance we'll see it on House of the Dragon. And if not a lot, I hope the Red Kraken Lady of the Rock plotline happens on TV. I could see it being not important enough for them to play with. But if they are doing it, it's, a, it's like a guarantee we'll see the rock. And so that, I hope we get that. And, and part of what happens during the dance is when, when it breaks out, Tylan Lannister takes the crown's treasury and stashes a whole a, a quarter of it at Castle Rock because it's one of the most defensible locations. Like, well, they're not going to get it from us here, so I don't know if that's going to be on the TV show or not. But it would it would all, it would be a way to involve Castle Rock even more. 
Of course, the foreshadowing of Tyrion's cistern business. That's such a big deal as far as how he might gain control of the rock from the rest of his family, especially when paired with the legends of Land the Clever, who had a variety of possible methods attributed to him as to how he may have taken it over, which we're probably supposed to think about in light of Tyrion being a clever man as well. Uh, so these features slash weaknesses within the structure are maybe where we're looking. And like Yandel even points out that these myths are probably exaggerated, but he thinks the it's worthwhile to deconstruct them. He's, he's like, he, he, the exercise of taking the extravagant things said about Castle Rock and trying to like bring them back down to a more realistic level is worth it. It's something that's an interesting exercise because it explains a lot about how human thinking works, how rumors work. So we think about a few of the options. The basic three that we that we hear from Tyrion or from Len the Clever are loosing lions inside, the secret way in, and turning Lannisters against each other. So let's let's go through those real quick. Turning loosing lions inside that that could be a a, a metaphor, you know, like unleashing his own men, loosing his own lions. But but and that's an interesting point because the one downside of an ultra secure fortress is that it can backfire when the enemies are you're trapped inside with these enemies, right? That fortress becomes. It works against you when you can't get out. Maybe disease, too. I mean, that might be worse. Trapped in there with all that humidity. I don't know. It could be worse. I don't know. Grayscale? What if Grayscale breaks out in Castle Rock or something wild like that? I don't know why Way it would. Way back in, in the early history of Castle Rock, actual lions, like seven or eight lions running around inside, if there were only like three or 400 people, if there was a limited number of chambers and corridors, that, that would have been more. But at this point... How are they going to get, how many lions can they get inside? Yeah. Like like real lions. How would they physically get them? How many could they get hold of? And then even still, there would be a limited ability for them to travel through. They'd be shot with air. Like, it, I don't think it can literally be that. Yeah. That might be like a diversion. It might be part of some bigger thing. But being cultivating insurrection, that's more legitimate, more of a threat or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I totally agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. And now there's also, the, like I said, well, how many elephants disease. can fit? I'm sorry? Well, how many elephants can <laughs> fit? How many elephants? Yeah. Are the, are the tunnels that big? <laughs> so You could probably ride 10 abreast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Imagine like a siege of Castle Rock by the others and then the disease breaks out inside. I'm not sure the story would ever get to that point, but that mm-hmm. would be, that would be fascinating to see that. Of course, the secret way in with the cisterns, that's pretty much what's what we're being told about, that there's the way the water flows out could be a way in for a secret way, a secret passage. Tyrion may know something that no one else does. Tywin flooded the rains. This would be the opposite, the, the, the water flowing back in <laughs> to take them out and flowing up. It's, uh, we'll have to see how it happens, but it might work out metaphorically that way. Turning Lannisters against each other, well, that's already happening. Right, there's already like factions within the Lannisters. Kevin and Cersei weren't getting along. Now Kevin's dead, but not all the other Lannisters are on Cersei's side either. And of course, Tyrion is already against them. So could it happen more? In other words, could Tyrion drive the wedge between the other Lannister branches even deeper, at least to the point where they're not supporting each other, if not fighting each other? And remember that in that anecdote, the way Lan turned some of them against each other is through this like campaign of terror where there was quote, howling from the darkness like a demon. Remember, Tyrion's the twisted monkey demon. He repeats that phrase himself all these times. I think the monkey part is more relevant, but the demon part is always part of it. So I don't know. That could be a connection, but frankly, the word demon appears a lot in A Song of Ice and Fire, so that might just be generic, kind of like a generic phrase. But here's another interesting quote that tells us a little bit more about the legendary on the interior. 
The Shrouded Lord is just a legend, he told himself, no more real than the ghost of Lan the Clever that some claim haunts Casterly Rock. Shrouded Lord is real, though. <laughs> so is that mean the ghost? It's also interesting is- to think of the idea of, like, why, why, why would there be a ghost of Lan? Why would he have a ghost? I guess it's just the, the story, this, this, yeah, just like, the servants he didn't, he didn't just like tell have that a, story. Or, it's yeah. like, I, I don't think he had a tragic end is what I mean. Yeah, that's true, because he, he lived for, like, 300 years and had a ton of children. Yeah, and, yeah. he's like, he's not necessarily the typical figure that you hear, like, having, like, a, a, a be haunted. Or yeah, have it. usually yeah, it's a ghost when someone is murdered yeah. or, like, they, their life is incomplete. They have a task left unsolved or incomplete. Yeah. yeah, so you're right. It doesn't normally, it doesn't fit the normal background story. But, yet the legend exists has maybe existed for a long time and it's held on because Tyrion is still aware of it Reyna queen of the west could be the first real queen who quote unquote real first queen whoever who never was i.e. the first Targaryen woman passed over due to gender now that's of course super relevant when we think about Cersei being passed over for her gender and her feelings on inheritance and all that Reyna was married to her brother Aegon Kind of a parallel to Cersei. Not actually married, but she had kids with him. And <laughs> she wants to marry him, or he wants to marry her. And yeah, they've gone back and forth on that. But yeah, it's uh, Reyna it was Queen of the West. Cersei may flee King's Landing and try to establish herself as Queen of the West. And we just talked about how well set up her region is for that. How well it could hold out against how much power and, and armies and wealth it has. I was thinking it theoretically when you mentioned it earlier. Yeah, I, I guess that Castle Rock could stand on its own, but it, I just don't think it's worth it. I still think it's more valuable than for them to be more interconnected. Who's good, if they can't sell their gold, it doesn't matter how much they have and, and the value of their ports and on and on and on. But uh, Cersei would do something that's not necessarily wise, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Like, well, lot, there might not be a good reason for it. Cersei will do it anyway. Not to mention so. plenty of other people. You're right. Like Not just her, obviously. She's yeah. obviously plenty of other foolish people around or people who make rash decisions. And as a clue to her in her to this possible plot line, here's a little conversation. A Feast for Crows, Cersei 3. This city is a cesspit. For half a groat, I would move the court to Lannisport and rule the realm from Casterly Rock. That would be an even greater folly than burning the Tower of the Hand. So long as Thomas sits the Iron Throne, the realm sees him as the true king. Hide him under the rock, and he becomes just another claimant to the throne, no different than Stannis. So it's similar to the whole, like, hiding. You, you can't, it's hard to be a king if you're hiding. People won't see you that way, which is maybe similar to the Field of Fire example and why Lorien emerged from the rock to fight Aegon rather than staying home. Oh, real quick, because you, that, that you just made me think about the idea when we were talking earlier about Tywin being on top yeah. of Castle Rock. I could see him making that argument. If you have to be at the top of Castle Rock to prove you're in charge, then you're not really in charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So again, this is a parallel to Aegon and Reyna, the queen in the West, because when Magor took the throne, he had initiative and the perce- perception of supremacy because Aegon and Reyna were usurped, right? And they ended up hiding at Castle Rock for a while. And it was the same kind of thing. Eventually they emerged and, well, it didn't go very well. Magor had Balerion and Aegon fought him on Quicksilver and Balerion won. <laughs> it's like a five times larger dragon or something like that. Ares moved the court to Castle Rock for half a year when Tywin had to go back. He was hand, but remember, this is Tywin was hand before he was Lord of Castle Rock. Titus died climbing the steps to visit his uh, lover. And... Tywin's like, I got to go home and put the re- put the West in order and take up my position there. He's like, all right, dog, I'll go with you. We'll set up court there for a while. So it's another example of the realm being ruled from the West. And See, Ares get, was a good friend. He, yeah, he didn't. He seemed like he was all right for a little while before he we went downhill. 
But uh, an Ares is the, who has more parallels to Cersei than Ares? Ares also talked about how stinky King's Landing was and wanting to move it. So like, there's a lot of talk around this subject of moving the capital. I mean, and Kevin weighs in and says, it would be even greater folly than burning the Tower Hand. Like you said, Sean was like, doesn't seem like a very good idea. Doesn't mean it won't happen though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, very yeah. wide open. A lot of possibilities. I like this. This is very cool. We have a relevant question for here oh. from TKOK Podcast Network. Hey, live was, viewer. From our live viewer. Since there was some debate in the chat, where do Aziz, Shea, and Sean fall on where Cersei will die? King's Landing or The Rock? I like this idea because the way Cersei dies on TV definitely gives you room to imagine that happening at The Rock, like it collapsing on her for some yeah. reason, like tunnels or something falling on her head. That yeah. could be at Cast The Rock instead of The Red Keep. Like definitely that would not be a big change for George to write it that way. Maybe that's what he's probably what he's always intended. If that's the case, that's what he's always intended. But yeah, it could happen at the Red Keep. Like, yeah, it could happen there. It could fall on them there or die some entirely other way or Jamie could choke her like to do the Valonqar prophecy and then that happens. Or- yeah, I don't want to, I, I won't commit to what, how I think she dies, but I do think it'll be at Cash to the Rock. Yeah. I, I think I so. think this, I think this is an unfair question limiting it, limiting, limiting the answer to only two places. Yeah. Well, she can't die Maybe in two places, dies. can she? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she dies on Euron's ship. Maybe she dies oh, yeah. traveling across the reach on the way to Castle mm. Rock, etc. That's true. Yeah. I, but you, I'm not sure what I think is more likely, rock. but whether she dies there or not, do you think she'll get to the rock? Well, and, and that describes whether she'll, uh, that obviously means I'm asking you not whether you think she'll try to go to the Raw. She's got. Yeah, to- right. That there's multiple steps have to happen. For to die at the Rock, first she has to try to go there in the first place, right? And then she has to survive the travel there. Then she has to not leave and go somewhere else and die. So I'm going to say, no, I don't think she dies in the Rock. She okay. has her protector, the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Can you bring the mountain into yeah. the rock? Is it too yeah. big? For you? Uh. <laughs> Tara Incognita says, Castle Rock is cold and Winterfell is warm. How about that? Yeah, yeah, that is neat how Winterfell's in the north and it's really warm because of the heat. It's got the, the hot springs, yeah. And, and Castle Rock is in the west, which is warm and normal-ish. Oh. And it's cold. Yeah, nice take. Good. It's the bowels of Castle Rock, but Winterfell's bowels are warm. And whoever says the bowels of Winterfell. Yeah, I think that was really nice because of, I think it speaks to the family itself that the Lannister family is cold with each other and the Winterfell and the Starks are, are warm with one another. I think it speaks Ooh, to the, yeah. the personality. I like uh, that. That's a good m- metaphor, a metaphor. Oh, and I also wanted to bring up a guilty undertaker and maybe someone else brought it up earlier as well, but they just brought it up again, that it'll be a good parallel having a, a final confrontation between the Lannisters at the Rock where they're all fighting with each other. Mm. And then at the same time in the story, or roughly, if we then have the Starks in Winterfell reconciling with each other mm. and being friendly with each other, not conflicting, but perhaps. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were a united force that came to Winterfell and screwed it all up yeah. by Bran witnessing and then by the end the Starks have reformed and are a peaceful family again and the Lannisters are just killing each other. Yeah. That would be an interesting, dark, but fitting bookend. Another angle to all that is that while the Starks might be warm with each other and the Lannisters cold with each other, the Lannisters are a little more passionate in general, I think, mm. than the Starks. They're a little bit more stoic. Well, certainly generous, certain the generation, certainly. 
Yeah, yeah, this generation. Yeah, you're right. Because when we think about other, like yeah. Brandon Stark was known for being passionate or whatever. So. Yeah. yeah, and and Ned Joffrey's not exactly stoic. So. Yeah, yeah. Ned, I mean that's Ned's whole attitude. Like he's like this. This life was meant for my brother. He's living someone else's life, and that brother was a very different man than him. So it's also part of like I don't fit. This isn't me. But he did what he needed to be done. And one of the reasons we respect Ned so much. All right, that about wraps it up. Let's have our trivia answer. The question again was, who says this quote? As the river is called the Mander, though the Mandalays were driven from its banks a thousand years ago, Highgarden is still Highgarden, though the last gardener died on the field of fire. Casterly Rock teems with Lannisters and nowhere Casterly to be found. The world changes, sir. I love that quote because it's it ends with Casterly Rock, so it's really fitting for this episode. But it also says like, well, the Castle Rock hasn't changed that much, but these other things have. And again, that might be a clue that Castle Rock will change, have some of its biggest era of change during this series when so many things are changing, which was already, the world is being turned over during, I love to call it the new age of heroes. And, and this is a good example of that. Maybe the Lannisters will not keep Castle Rock after it all. Anyway, you, you had a guess, Sean? Let's see. Jamie. Nope. Nope. Okay. Anyone else want to guess? I, someone in the chat, I'll tell you who the first guess in the chat was. What? The first guess was Rahan Weber. That is correct. Okay, that was the only uh, only one person guessed her. Other people guessed a uh, number, like uh, Eustace Osgray and some other Dunkin' Egg stuff. Guessing Eustace Osgray is really good because it's really close. Yeah, right? exactly. Was, so like, they were yeah. thinking maybe it was Same a Dunkin' Same exact egg. story. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was a Jasmine. A J, it was a J name that got the Rahan. So anyways, nice. good job. So that's to, from the Sworn Sword, yeah. <laughs> Something made me think of Jamie, and then I did start thinking, was that a Dunkin' Egg? I'm like, no, I think it was Jamie. Yeah. I did, that was my waffle, you my, my it, second yeah. guess. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that was a good question, I guess, then. At least at least one person got it. We mentioned joannalannister.tumblr.com and raceforthearonthrone.tumblr.com, but also just raceforthearonthrone.com. That works, too. Check out Stephen and Joanna, their posts on this and many other great topics. Yeah, you can also check out Joanna Lannister. Um, she's known for running two blogs. One is uh, more well-known as ASOIF University, also run with um, Nobody Suspects the Butterfly and Poor Quentin of uh, Not a Class. But she also runs, highly relevant to History Westeros listeners, the Tumblr blog Pre-Game of Thrones. I don't think it's very active right now, but it's still a great resource for art and other meta and stuff like that. Right. Oh, that's a good name, too. Pre-Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> just everything, yeah, it's pretty, just all encompassing. Woo, I couldn't say that. But uh, just everything before a Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you all for coming. Remember that you can get more on that Red Kraken business with Joanna by checking out our Patreon slash Spotify subscribe subscription slash website donation. Those are your three ways to get it. As long as along with a lot of our other great bonus episodes. Remember, next week we have our polls that decide the episode. This time the winner of the poll was drumroll please, Bear Island and House Mormont. We'll be talking about that. That'll be a lot of fun. Nice remote location. Another island, which means it has its own culture, its own difficulties, its own everything. I can barely wait. Yeah, that'll be cool. A lot more characters to talk about. The Outlook you didn't portion. Like that one. <laughs> the Outlook portion <laughs> of that one should be fun talking about what what's next for House Mormont. That'll be good because there's a lot of different Mormonts doing a lot of different things. And they're uh, one of the more prominently placed houses for a kind of minorish house, right? You got a Mormont on the wall. Well, you had one. You got a Mormont with Danny. Oh, well, you had one, but he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Mormonts all stick around, but they're still out there. Yeah. And, of course, the famous Liana Mormont and all the great Daisy Mormont. There's so many good Mormonts. Mm. So, thank you all for coming. Thanks to Nina for her excellent notes. Sean, did you have something else to say? 
I just want, in general, for people to follow me on Twitter yes. at Dance and Sean. But specifically, if you're paying attention to Better Call Saul, which I think I have now decided is just the best TV show of all time, yes. <laughs> and it's coming up to its mid-season finale, and I wrote a big long thing about it. I didn't want to put it on Twitter because of spoilers, but it is on my Facebook. But anyway. Engage with me about it, please. I'd love to talk about it. I think the show is so great. They're designing an amazing season right now. Yeah, I put a I link. Can't go on about it enough. So Sean is yeah. There's there's so many things that Sean, Sean is, has to say about it. So okay. definitely worth checking that out. If you if you're a fan of the show, you definitely do yourself Sean? that favor. Is What's it a cat day today? Oh, I can get a cat. We have gonna linger around for another moment as he's wrapping. Yeah, thanks to everyone else who watches or listens afterwards. If you weren't here live, we understand that it's not always easy to be here for that. But we are here every almost every Sunday at three Eastern for our live streams during House of the Dragon season. That will change, but we'll probably settle back into this afterwards. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin for the music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our maps and video intro. Thanks to the mods helping us out over on Facebook and Discord and our groups that are so well-maintained. Very polite, illuminating discussions that happens there. Even our, YouTube, say- even our YouTube is pretty good. We don't really get the trolling that happens to a lot. We do it occasionally, but... Yeah, I want to say nice. thanks to Tommy who took us out to delicious dinner last night. Yeah. I just graduated college, so it was like a kind of a graduation dinner for me in addition to having him visit. Anyways, it was a great time. Yeah. Um, so. Thanks, Tommy. Yeah, and congratulations to Ashea for graduating. Yay. Yes, I did. Her, how long was your paper? My paper was 69 pages. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a toff we got? Oh. This is a core. Oh, core. I, I can't tell them apart yet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Ooh. look at that. She got your beard. <laughs> yeah. He's staring at you like, what are you doing, bro? What are you doing, dad? What are you doing? As we said last week, it's still true this week. Ice and FireCon YouTube is sharing panels, including some that we were on. You can find them by looking up a geek saga. Well, that's one of the best ways, but you can also just find Ice and FireCon on Twitter. Or on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And that is everything. We'll be back next week. Like I said, Bear Island and House Mormont. And you know what to do. Until next time, my friends, my fellow Westorians, Velar Reedus.